taking on Big Blue Nation. I see, he's just completely taking the wind out of my sails. <laughs> it's time for The Drive with Josh Graham. Unbelievable lineup in store for you this afternoon and this evening. I have been covering sports in the great state of North Carolina for roughly 35 years. And you picked a heck of a day to join us for the drive because I believe we are on the cusp of one of the biggest sporting events in those 35 years. I've covered this great state and the Atlantic Coast Conference and Duke and Carolina and people like Mike Krzyzewski and Hubert Davis, the coaches who will go head-to-head tomorrow night in New Orleans. You have picked a great time to join us. Duke and Carolina have played each other for more than 102 years. They have played each other head-to-head 257 times. What they have never done until tomorrow is play each other head-to-head on the greatest stage that this sport has to offer, and I would argue one of the greatest stages that all of American sports has to offer. It is the Final Four. It is the Big Dance. It is March Madness. It is the NCAA Tournament. And for the first time, with all sorts of storylines swirling, you can't even list them all, we will finally get the Blue Devils against the Tar Heels on that ultimate stage. And, of course, it comes in the national semifinals. Kansas and Villanova on the other side of that bracket. The Tar Heels and the Blue Devils will be in the late game tomorrow night. We have an unbelievable lineup for you. Josh Graham is in New Orleans. He will join us in about 15 minutes. He will join us again in our second hour. He will join us again in our third hour. And I promise you, if you are with us for huge chunks of today's show, and we appreciate that, we will be discussing different things on each of Josh's visits to his own show. But wait, there's more. I would argue that the two greatest authors on this rivalry, I mean in the history of the world, are both guests on today's program. A guy named Art Chansky literally wrote the book. You know that phrase, so-and-so wrote the book? Art Chansky literally wrote the book and then wrote it again. It was called Blue Blood, and then it was called Blue Blood 2. It is, of course, about the Duke-Carolina rivalry, which in the eyes of many, and I say this as a guy who hosted a statewide sports radio show here in North Carolina for a long time and who has been on the airwaves of North Carolina for 30-some years in one form or another. It is not just the great state of North Carolina that celebrates Duke versus UNC. There is Yankees, Red Sox, and Major League Baseball. There is Auburn, Alabama, and Michigan, Ohio State, and many others in college football. I'm not saying this is the only rivalry in American sports, but I am saying that the theory that it's one of the best or arguably in some ways the best, given that both sides have won so much, given that those schools happen to be located roughly eight miles apart, you don't see that in most other rivalries. You do see all of those things and more in this rivalry. And having lived in other places around the country, having been raised in Pennsylvania, born in Illinois, lived for a while in Florida, 
I can promise you, Duke Carolina is way, way bigger than the boundaries of our state. And of course, with them playing each other in the Final Four, it is the talk of the town here in the triad as we come at you today on WSJS Sports in this great part of our great state of North Carolina. Art Chansky literally wrote the book, John Feinstein is maybe the most prolific sports author in all of American history. He's going to join us first hour, but wait, there's still more. A guy who wore the Duke uniform for Mike Krzyzewski, but is nowadays a sports and specifically basketball broadcaster, Ala Abdel Nabi is going to drop by with a player's perspective wearing that royal shade of blue. A guy named Eric Montross. I've got about 14 feet worth of guests just in Abdel Nabi and Montross. They're both roughly seven footers or close to it. Eric Montross, like Josh Graham, will join us live from New Orleans. So we have two on-site guests today, if not more than that. Big E nowadays, remember he was a national champion while playing for Dean Smith and wearing that lighter shade of blue of the Tar Heels. He is now on the call for UNC basketball broadcasts. Eric Montross live from New Orleans. Josh Graham live from New Orleans. Art Chansky later in the program. John Feinstein in this first hour of the program. Ala Abdel Nabi will join us in between. And wait, there's even more. Ian Eagle is, in my opinion, one of the best play-by-play broadcasters in America today. You hear him on the NFL every single week. You hear him on Brooklyn Nets broadcasts. He is the voice of that NBA franchise. You also hear him, of course, every year on March Madness, CBS Sports, Turner Sports, etc. He is fresh off the call for Carolina's win over St. Peter's. So it's not just Ian Eagle dropping by randomly in all of his brilliance. He just got an eyeful of these Tar Heels as the number eight seed of Hubert Davis has advanced to the Final Four. I'm going to try to drop a whole bunch of tidbits on you today, but did you know that the lowest-seeded team ever to win the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament was an eight-seed? This tournament has been around since the 1930s. The lowest seed ever to win it all, and I was a little kid in Philadelphia when it happened, Villanova, based in Philly, won the national title as an eight-seed in 1985. That was the first time it happened. That is the only time it has ever happened. The Tar Heels, of course, you don't usually hear their name in the same sentence as Cinderella, but in this Blue Blood Final Four, guess what? Kansas is a one-seed. Duke and Villanova are both two seeds. That makes, as strange as it might sound, the Tar Heels, one of the most decorated programs in college basketball history, that by default makes the Tar Heels the closest thing that we have to Cinderella in this year's version of March Madness. So we will get the players' perspective, the broadcasters' perspectives, and the authors' perspectives. And of course, I will share you mine as I have covered the Duke Carolina rivalry since 1987, and I have seen it from every angle except the angle that we are going to get tomorrow night in New Orleans. We do have a phone number for you to chime into today's program and one more piece of entertainment beyond those great guests. You could hang around just to see how often I screw up today because think about it. If you host a show for 20-some years, there's a certain number that I could wake up screaming in the middle of the night. I know what that number is that I gave over the air for 20-some years, right? It is embedded in my brain until the day that I die. 
I am not supposed to say that number today. I am not supposed to say David Glenn show. I am not supposed to say that that particular 800 number. There's probably a dozen things that are embedded into my DNA given 20 plus years in sports radio. All of those things are different today. We're coming at you on WSJS Sports. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. It's just with DG in his chair. And the number, if you would like to participate, is 336-777-1600. Some of you know this, but I will share it anyway as I introduce another important part of the program. I used to call him Intern Will, but he's all grown up now. Will Dalton is the producer of today's program. Luis is running social media for us today, right? Happy to have him with us as well. I used to call Josh Graham Intern Josh. This is a really big sign that I'm getting old. The guy's had his own show for a long time now. Intern Josh is now the drive with Josh Graham. And intern Will is now Will Dalton. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Uh, It's a sign that you're getting old, but it's also a sign that you're getting some stuff right, too. See? You have a great tree. So a great far, tree. right? I mean, Bill Walsh has an NFL coaching tree. I am not only getting things right with guys like you and Josh Graham and, and literally dozens of others populating the sports media world, I want none of the credit, and whatever y'all screw up, they can blame me. That's I'm yeah. all cool. I'm at that stage of career, Will, of my career, where what's the saying that the kids use? They're out of blanks to give. I am Something so like that. far past that stage of my career. They can just blame me if anything goes wrong. And as you guys continue to shine like the bright stars that you are, I demand that all of you guys take the credit. Isn't it cool that our circles have come back together? Oh, it's so cool. Right? I, I was telling Darren, because we uh, we spoke on the phone before the show, I was just like, is there anything else I could do to add a little more value? I think I got it, because we've, <laughs> we've done this once or twice, DG. Well... You were with me five, most of my interns over 20 some years right. were with me twice a week or three times a week. Yeah. You were with me five times five a week days. over a lot of time. Yeah. So you have literally done hundreds and hundreds of shows with me. Yep. And But you just haven't always been in the co director's chair. I've never been will. in the co director's chair. So anything that might go wrong on your side of the glass is Will Dalton's fault. That's all. Anything I mean. that goes wrong on my side of the glass is my fault. Josh Graham is going to join us live from New Orleans, and I do want to ask his large audience, and again, I'm thrilled to be with you today, in part because I believe we're on the cusp of one of the biggest sporting events in the history of our state, and I really don't believe that's an exaggeration. You could argue that because, and and if folks have an opinion on this, there will be times to jump in over the course of these three hours. Again, 336-777-1600. Because... The National Football League, for a long time now, has been the most popular sport in America. You could argue, and I don't even believe there's only one correct answer. A lot of questions in life, there's a right answer and a lot of wrong answers. Some other questions in life, it's just kind of to each his own, to each her own, right? You say potato, I say potato, that kind of stuff. When it comes to this sort of question, you could make the argument that because the National Football League is by far the most popular sport in America, that the Carolina Panthers, the team in the NFL, of course, from our backyard, they've gone to the Super Bowl twice. At least in one of those two examples, they were playing in front of a TV audience of more than 114 million people. That's pretty big. You could love NASCAR. 
and there's nothing associated with our state that's ever been that big in NASCAR. You could love golf. And, man, I'll tell you, if it's on your short list that Payne Stewart once edged Phil Mickelson, legends of golf, right here in our backyard, in that case, on North Carolina soil, that was Pinehurst number two that got to host our national championship in the sport of golf. That happened here. That's somewhere on my top 10 list of the 10 biggest events in the history of sports here in North Carolina. They didn't all have to be here, of course. Didn't have to be on North Carolina soil to qualify. If you're a hockey fan as I am, I was there personally when the Carolina Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup. That's the highest level team championship anybody in our state has ever achieved at the professional level. Obviously, the Wolfpack has multiple national titles in men's basketball. Carolina has six seeking number seven if they can get to to Monday night. Duke has five, all of them under Coach K, seeking number six if the Devils could get to Monday night. What is that biggest sporting event in the history of our state? Whatever your list looks like, whatever my list looks like, we could argue, and it's really not worth arguing in that negative sense, but we could discuss, debate, dissect the order of the biggest ever. If Duke Carolina meeting in the NCAA tournament for the first time in a 102-year-old rivalry that is mega famous and occasionally even draws international attention, if that's not somewhere on your list, you're just not paying attention. Again, we could argue about the other best candidates, but we are on the cusp of something special. On the other side, Josh Graham live from New Orleans. He has fresh audio from the UNC side of the fence. Later, he'll rejoin us with fresh audio from the Duke side of the fence. John Feinstein will be with us later. Allah Abdelnabi later. Eric Montross later. Art Chansky later. Ian Eagle later. You, me, and your phone calls amidst that version of March Madness along the way. 336-777-1600. This is The Drive with Josh Graham. I am David Glenn, and Josh will join us live from New Orleans next. Welcome back. David Glenn at the steering wheel today of the drive. Josh Graham is the host of this program. He's about to join us live from New Orleans, of course, the site of this year's Final Four. One month ago today in New Orleans, Mardi Gras actually started. One month later, it is a different kind of party, basketball style. And your regular host of this program, who gave me permission to call today's show Free for All Friday in honor of a tradition that I used on the air for more than two decades. Remember, Ian Eagle joins us later, the great play-by-play man on the NCAA tournament and many other things. Art Chansky, the author, literally he wrote the book on Duke Carolina, joins us later. Eric Montross, UNC broadcaster and national champion player from back in the day will join us live from New Orleans. Ala Abdelnabi will represent the former Coach K player, part of this story. And John Feinstein, maybe the most prolific American sports author of our all, will join us later this hour. Right now, I believe we have him on the line. Live from the Big Easy, Josh Graham. I get to say welcome to the drive with Josh Graham. Josh Graham, how are you? I, I, I'm standing here in media breakout rooms, just stepped out, of talking to some of the broadcast crew a second ago, so I might have missed the tail end of that question. Do you mind repeating it? 
Well, I just started with it's cool to be able to say, Josh Graham, welcome to the drive with Josh Graham, and, and that you gave the green light for calling today's very special edition of your show, Free For All Friday, in honor of 20-some years of my time on the air. So that's, that's a pretty cool thing, but I just made the joke that a month ago, Mardi Gras was in New Orleans, which is maybe one of America's greatest parties. And yet you're attending a basketball party that is about as good as it gets in sports. What have you what have you seen so far that you would communicate to those who have never been to a Final Four in person? Just how big it is, DG. It's unbelievable to see 30, 40,000 people in the building right now watching players practice. <laughs> we're talking about practice, practice, man. That's what we're looking at right now is Duke is out there and there's a lot of, uh, and we'll update things on Duke a little later. Carolina was out there just a little while ago, and a lot of really neat things I got for you here. I caught up with Jim Nance, Bill Raftery, Grant Hill, and Tracy Wolfson, who are going to be on the call, yeah. of course, tomorrow. And they told me that this is really special for them. Raft says he hasn't called a Carolina-Duke game since the mid-1990s at the latest. Maybe there's a chance it was the early 90s. Jim Nance hasn't done a Duke Carolina game since CBS stopped carrying the, uh, the game that was played in Chapel Hill every other year about a decade ago. This is the first time Grant Hill's going to be able to call the game that, of course, he's played in many times. And on top of that, Tracy Wolfson says this is the first time that she's got a chance to be in the building for this series altogether. So it's going to be really neat for the broadcast team that's going to be bringing it to us, Jim Nance, with a lot of ties to the state of North Carolina, and I'm just happy to be here and give a lot of credit to you for being in the studio and also some love to our friends at uh, Beamer Tyron Auto, the Carolina Cobras, and, of course, our team here at WSJS Sports. Amen to that. It's The Drive with Josh Graham. We are talking with Josh Graham live from New Orleans at the Final Four. Now, I did not hear all of your shows this week, even though I appeared on one of them. How have you put into perspective, you know, one of the questions I asked your audience today is has there ever been a larger sporting event connected to the state of North Carolina, meaning either on North Carolina soil or involving one of North Carolina's more prominent teams? And my bottom line is it's okay if you have a different pecking order than I have or you have, but Duke Carolina meeting in the NCAA tournament for the first time, and it happens to be in the Final Four after playing each other for 102 years, that has to be somewhere near the top, right? I think this is number one on the list, and I've been reading some columns and stories that have addressed this topic, but what I keep defaulting to is every other example that you can bring up as a possible contender for that title, what's most significant in the state of North Carolina, only features one of the two teams' odds are. like You could talk about how impactful 74 was when NC State played Maryland in the ACC tournament, but, you know, you got NC State, and it's a team that's from the state of Maryland, obviously. And bonus you can bring up a lot of other examples like the Super Bowl. Right? Bonus yeah, points point for being on North Carolina soil, yeah. Yes, it was played in uh, North Carolina soil for sure. But um, it's something I actually, funny enough, going back to Nance, I-, I brought that up to Nance knowing what this state means to him. And he says, you know, just thinking about how big this is for a state I care about so much. It's starting to make me nervous. Stop <laughs> talking to me about that, Josh, is what he joked with me probably about five minutes ago. I did want to share this with you, though. Yeah. So a couple days ago, Jeff Goodman asked a question to 
Armando Baycott. Oh, I love this. Just want to see if Will has this queued up. Uh, you got, um, and he responded in kind by saying, before he even answered the question that Jeff asked, I saw earlier you called the soft early on in the season, right. and I just was shooting to get back to the final four just to see you face-to-face to let you know that I read what you said. So I was just minding my own business, DG. I <laughs> sat down in one of these media break in, uh, breakout rooms, and somebody else asked a question of Baycott, and it was about saving some of these tweets in the process of it, and you'll hear the rest of what Baycott had to say. He pointed right at Josh, didn't he? Like, what, what's the process there? Like, keep it tapped. Yeah, um, I bookmarked uh, when you when he had us losing the UVA in the uh, ACC tournament. <laughs> I really do. I really do bookmark everything. And it's funny you asked that when he came in. <laughs> So, yeah, I definitely, I just, you know, just something to look back forward on. And that's what kind of made it great yesterday when Jeff Goodman came back because that was something I wanted to be able to see him at the final four and kind of look him in his eyes and talk to him. So I'm not, I'm not the regular host of this show. When Josh Graham is in New Orleans but makes a reference to that UNC big man, isn't there some audio that you're supposed to play? Armando. Or... There it is. There. See? See? I'm a Josh. I'm a drive listener. I'm a drive so listener. I'm had, a drive fan. I, I had. So he just took a shot at me while I'm sitting there. I love so I it. had to say to him, ask, I had to say afterwards, Baker, Armando, are you, are you, do you save at least the positive ones? And he looked at me. He's like, oh, I see that clip. I see the Armando Baycott clip. I see that every time. It's Armando. So, <laughs> he's, it he's very much aware of it. He's very much aware of it, and I thought that was a really cool moment. And just to be clear, and I saw your video, of course, everybody knows you can follow me on Twitter at David Glenn Show. You can follow Josh at Josh Graham Radio. He did post the video of Armando. I don't want to use it, even the phrase calling him out because he was laughing, smiling, and giggling. When he was calling out Jeff Goodman and while he was calling out Josh Graham. So call, I have to come up with a different phrase than calling. That's the kindest, gentlest calling out of anybody. And obviously you were there, Josh. You could tell that Armando. See, now, if I say that, does it still go? When, it, oh, it that Armando goes. Was just, there it is. Armando was just having fun, right? Yeah, he was. Uh, it's. I hope in the supercharged times that we live in today this is what we should aspire to when people disagree with each other the type of discourse that you could have he uses it as fuel and genuinely he is such a delightful kid to be around and we get a chance to cover wake forest and duke and carolina and some of the others around here too but i don't think there's any player this year that's been more delightful to be around than Armando Baycott, and I'm not just saying Armando. that. We have to drop. Well done, Will Dalton, on the Armando drop. Well done, Josh Graham. That's the first of his three check-ins from New Orleans. I have John Feinstein on the other side, and here's Josh Graham will appreciate this. John Feinstein is one of the only guests I've ever had that I actually worry about making sure I get him on the air at the time I asked him to be on the air. Everybody, like I'm a guest like 500 times a year, and I always say if you call me within like 10 minutes of your promised time, I'm cool with it. I just kind of go with the flow. Feinstein likes you to be on time, so is it okay, Josh, if I let you go now and we check back in an hour later? Josh just always go with the flow that way. I'm sure I'll accidentally say Armando at least one more time today 
Well, credit to you and the producer's chair for being all over that audio. John Feinstein is seriously one of the most prolific sports authors in American history. He's written 45 books, still a contributor to the Washington Post, the Golf Channel, and others. He writes about a lot of things, but college basketball is one of his fortes. He is a Duke graduate. He's been very close to Mike Krzyzewski over the years. He wrote The Legends Club, that book about Mike Krzyzewski, Dean Smith, and Jim Valvano the trifecta of triangle coaches there. He's also written A March to Madness, Last Dance Behind the Scenes at the Final Four. So he knows this rivalry inside and out. He knows college hoops inside and out. He knows the Final Four inside and out. John Feinstein, author, next. Welcome back to The Drive. Josh Graham will rejoin us live from New Orleans, site of the Final Four, of course. Great lineup of phone guests still to come. My name is David Glenn. I'm having fun with y'all heading into one of the biggest sporting events in the history of our great state. We will get to other things, including the stuff you're used to here on the drive. We'll get to the big four at four. We'll get to five things at five. We'll get to Eric Montross of UNC live from New Orleans. We'll get to Art Chansky, who literally literally wrote the book on the Duke Carolina rivalry. He did it twice. He'll join us in hour number two. Eric Montross, also hour number two. Josh Graham's revisit later. Ala Abdel Nabi, former Duke big man, is going to be with us later this hour. John Feinstein, the noted author, is going to join us here shortly. He wrote the book as well on this rivalry, on the Final Four, on a March to Madness. The name, is the name of one of his books. Also later, Ian Eagle, he was on the call for play-by-play as UNC knocked off St. Peter's in the Elite Eight to get to this Final Four. Ian Eagle got an eye full of the Tar Heels. He, of course, knows the Blue Devils well as well. He'll join us in hour number three, and Josh Graham will rejoin us on his show as well. Joining us now, his next book is called Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, Race and the Illusion of Progress in Modern Sports. Many of you know him for Legends Club, chronicling the great coaches in our backyard, Dean Smith, Mike Krzyzewski, and the late, great Jim Valvano. A March to Madness, another of his books. Last Dance, behind the scenes at the Final Four. And we always call on him at times like this. John Feinstein, I'm I'm used to saying, welcome to the David Glenn Show. Welcome to The Drive with Josh Graham. But it's great to hear your voice again. How are you? David, it's good to talk to you again. It's been a while. It has been a while. So as a guy who's been chronicling this great rivalry for 40-plus, if not 50 years, what popped into your mind first as the possibility of Duke and Carolina finally meeting in the NCAA tournament became a probability and then a reality? Well, this was probably a game that uh, had to happen sooner or later, and it really turned out to be later. I mean, it could have happened realistically as early as 1980 when the NCAA expanded to allow uh, an unlimited number of teams per conference into the tournament, uh, and that it was a game that uh, would be savored and dreaded by people on both sides, whether it's Duke or Carolina, because somebody's going to lose. Yeah. And whomever loses is going to come out of the game feeling pretty lousy, first of about losing in the Final Four, but second about losing in the Final Four to their arch rival. I mentioned Legends Club. Of course, part of that was the almost in 1991. There's Dean at the Final Four. 
There's Kay at the Final Four. In a weird way, there was Roy Williams uh, representing Kansas at the time at the Final Four. What do you recall about the reactions of Dean Smith or Mike Krzyzewski? I imagine they mostly avoided public comment about the possibility of facing each other head-to-head on that great stage. Uh, but what do you recall either during, leading up, or in the aftermath about that close call in 1991? Well, leading up, they didn't talk very much at all because they both had the easy excuse of we've got to think about Saturday. Yeah. Um, Carolina was playing Kansas, and, of course, Duke was playing Nevada-Las Vegas, and nobody expected them to win that game. Vegas had crushed them in the championship game the year before and was 34-0, and uh, and people were basically awarding them the national title uh, before that final four in Indianapolis. Now, um, and, and, and Dean, of course, never wanted to talk much about that weekend because not only did Carolina lose to Kansas, but he was ejected from the game in the final minute uh, by the late referee Pete Pavia. Uh, but I did talk to Mike uh, about that weekend at some length when I wrote the Legends Club, and he told me that he was sitting in, in the coach's locker room in the old Hoosier Dome watching the end of the Carolina-Kansas game, and it occurred to him that when he realized Kansas was going to win, he felt a sense of relief that they didn't have to play that game in the national championship game and that, that they, if, if they lost to Vegas, they wouldn't have to watch Carolina play in the championship game. And he realized that if he was thinking that, his players were certainly thinking that too. So he walked into the locker room and said to the, at that moment, long before he was you know, scheduled to go in in, in pregame, uh, and said, look, fellas, Carolina's just lost. And it means that we don't have to play him on Monday night if we get there. And think about it for a minute. Now flush it. Hmm. Because it doesn't mean anything right now. The only thing that matters right now is trying to beat Vegas. And, of course, they did go out and upset Vegas and then went beat Kansas for – uh, Duke's first national championship and Shashevsky's first national championship. And, and he has said since then to me that what I just said to you, that if they ever did play in the tournament, it would be a very pressurized game for the fan bases, more than for the players, because the players play each other all the time. They know each other. You know, the players get along. The coaches get along. I mean, Dean and Mike had their moments for sure. Roy and Mike have had their moments for sure. But th- there was mutual respect among all of them. And so I-, I think the pressure, extra pressure, beyond the Final Four game comes more from the fan bases than the players. The players know they're in the Final Four, and that's a big deal no matter who you're playing. John Feinstein is joining us. You can follow him on Twitter at J Feinstein Books. His next book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, Race and the Illusion of Progress in Modern Sports, you can pre-order that. No, it's out, David. David, it's out. Oh, I, I was on your website and saw the pre-order. Um, yeah, never trust my website. You can buy it. Um, no, you the, can book, order the it. book came out in November. Uh, it's about race and sports. It got great reviews. I have thrilled. it, but I thought mine was an advanced copy. Yeah, well, <laughs> sorry about that, Chief. That's, that's all good. Uh, hey, you know, you've written a lot about Coach K's West Point mentality. Uh, yep. And even that 1991 reference where he, he was thinking about the championship. I'll never forget you describing Dean Smith when you were a young writer, giving you the sense that he competed in interviews, uh, which I thought was just an incredible description. Both Hubert and Kay have gone a 1,000 miles out of their way this week to, to do their best to minimize the rivalry talk. 
And one of Coach K's quotes was, you know, if we're thinking about payback, if we're thinking about revenge, if we're thinking about rivalry, we're not going to make it to Monday night. Do you believe 18 to 22-year-olds will receive those messages as long as you've been around that age bracket? I don't know so much that they'll receive those messages uh, because players know that uh, coaches are going to say what they have to say leading up to a game. It's like when you're, you're playing uh, an early season game that's a guarantee game at home against someone and, and, and your coach is trying to say, oh, these guys are really good, you know, and you know deep down you're probably going to beat them by 30. Uh, although we know occasionally uh, upsets happen, teams are better uh, than you thought they were. Mike Krzyzewski still talks about the Wagner game in 1982 that they lost. Uh, but I, I, I think in this case, because of the stage, they're playing in a stadium. They're playing in the Final Four. They know they're not going to play any more than two games. The Duke players are probably relieved that they only have to answer questions about Mike's retirement for another two games, and then that'll be over. Um, but I, I, I think so. It's not so much that they hear Mike or Hubert saying, oh, this has nothing to do with rivalry. It's that they know what's at stake in the Final Four because they've watched it all their lives. And, and they understand that, that it is a unique opportunity to win a national championship. Very, how many players in history, other than the ones who played for John Wooden and the Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, Grant Hill group, have played on more than one championship team? So you get that one chance, especially nowadays when kids turn pro early, uh, and, and you know that it, 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 they also know that whomever wins this game, it's going to mean a lot less if they don't win on Monday night. I, I still remember Krzyzewski after that Vegas game in 91 running out on the court with his palms down saying, cool it, cool it, because he knew they hadn't reached their goal yet. He had lost two championship games already, and he didn't want them celebrating the Vegas win as if, the tournament was over because they still had another game to play. Whomever wins on Saturday night, I guarantee you the winning coach, whether it's first-year coach Hubert Davis or 47th-year coach Mike Krzyzewski, is going to be telling his players, okay, great win, now we got to get ready for Monday because it's a fast turnaround, especially when you play the second game. Duke is the younger team with several very important freshmen, and those guys did not seem to respond to the pressure of 100 former players attending Coach K's last game in Cameron very well. Do you believe uh, that either that pressure, you know, youth versus more experienced, or, or even the X's and O's of the Duke win in Chapel Hill or the Carolina win in Durham, do you believe any of that matters as they study video, or is this not just about you know, execution? Not that much. I mean, the losing team was terrible in both games. Yeah. I mean, Carolina never showed up in the game in Chapel Hill, and Duke was sort of hung around for a half and then collapsed in the second half in the game in Cameron. Uh, I think in the game in Cameron, the pressure absolutely got to, to the Duke players. You know, the, all the buildup for Mike's last home game, and all, as you said, all the former players coming back and the ceremony planned for after the game, which they were fully aware of, it got to them, and, and, and they crashed. Uh, this is a completely different kind of pressure. And, you know, Mike always tries to say this is their journey and I'm just along for the ride. At this point, it really is, because even if they lose Saturday night or Monday night, 
Krzyzewski walks into the sunset with five national championships and 13 Final Fours and all those crazy numbers of his. They never get another chance to play in a Final Four or for a national championship. The same with the Carolina players. But I think some of the pressure is off for, that existed for Duke. I don't think there was ever that much pressure on Carolina because they went in as an eight seed. Yeah. And everybody knew they were better than that. Uh, you know, I, I actually saw some people refer to Carolina last week as a Cinderella because they were an eight seed. <laughs> Schools like Duke and North Carolina are never Cinderellas. You know, they've got pros on the team. St. Peter's was Cinderella. <laughs> but the, the, but I, I think that uh, winning that Michigan State game, coming from behind, making all their shots down the stretch, kind of got them to a different level in terms of dealing with pressure. And they, they played great down the stretch against Texas Tech and then played a very complete game against Arkansas. Do they have one or two more in them? You never know. Because one of the things about getting to the Final Four Whomever you're playing is hot. Yeah. Everybody who gets there is hot because they've won four in a row. It's four champions, as Coach K called it, his favorite day of the year in college basketball. John Feinstein on Twitter at Jay Feinstein Books. His new book, Raise a Fist, Take a Knee, Race, and the Illusion of Progress in Modern Sports. Great to hear your voice again, man. Thanks for jumping on with me. David, always good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Right back at you. Allah Abdul Nabi is going to join us on the other side. He played for Mike Krzyzewski. He still broadcasts basketball, mostly at the NBA level. He's done a lot of work for CBS Sports as well. He's actually a Philadelphia 76ers analyst these days after a nice career in the NBA and, of course, after being a standout player for Mike Krzyzewski and the Blue Devils at the end of the 1980s and the very beginning of the 1990s, just as the Blue Devils we're about to win the first two back-to-back of what is now Mike Krzyzewski's five NCAA titles, the Devils seeking number six over the extended weekend in New Orleans. Still to come, more from Josh Graham in New Orleans. Still to come, author Art Chansky. Still to come, UNC broadcaster Eric Montross, CBS play-by-play guru Ian Eagle, my name is David Glenn. Will Dalton is your producer. We'll get to Allah Abdul Nabi, then the Big Four, next on The Drive. David Glenn, a long time ago, clearly inspired by the great basketball I watched when Allah Abdul Nabi was playing at Duke. And right around that same time, when our guest later, Eric Montross, was playing at Carolina. I actually created a magazine and a website, accsports.com and the ACC Sports Journal. Those are still alive and kicking almost 30 years later, and now I get to interview the guys whose games I once covered, of course, with Duke and Carolina after 102 years of competition, finally meeting on the NCAA platform for the first time. I call some of my favorites, and he is one. He now works with the Philadelphia 76ers as a basketball analyst, He's done a lot of great work, of course, for CBS Sports as well. The former Duke star, the former NBA player. He played for Coach K, remember, Allah Abdul Nabi. Welcome back. I'm used to saying to the David Glenn Show, I'm actually on the drive with Josh Graham right now, but it's great to hear you either way. DZ, great to be with you, my man. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited, man. Creating that magazine and website is why I can now play golf in 10 different states and take my <laughs> wife to you. the Caribbean every spring, you know? Uh, but, Good but, for you. <laughs> but back to the action on the court. 
you played for Coach K. He has been telling us all week that it can't be about the rivalry. It can't be about payback. It can't be about revenge for that game that you and what 99 other members of the brotherhood watched at Cameron as they kind of spo- the Tar Heels spoiled Coach K's party. Will young men listen to that message and wh- what do you recall about video study of an opponent or or anything else leading up to the third time you're facing the same opponent and this time with, you know, everything at stake? Well, what I remember, David, is I remember him tell, telling us that to treat it like a normal game, you know, that, as if that was possible. <laughs> but I think, I think what his, his idea was, if we were going to play East Carolina, we'd have to be just as up for that game as if we would be for North Carolina. It would probably obviously take a little more work to get up for the East Carolina game, but he would always remind us what was more important than what we're doing. In the entire world, right now, this is the task at hand, and we're doing it. What could possibly be more important? Because we're involved. And so that would give us perspective. And I think now when you're playing a team like Carolina, especially on this stage, it's enough when you're playing them in conference play or if you get to play them in the ACC tournament. But now you're playing them in the Final Four. I think you've got to keep that same approach. It's another game. There are enough motivations out there. Just to get to Monday night is enough of a motivation that it really doesn't matter except for X's and O's who you're playing. It just happens to be Carolina, but I like the quote. I believe it was Wendell Moore that said, listen, they're in our way. It could be anybody that's in our way. It just happens to be Carolina, and we're going to go out and have to approach it the same exact way. Play our best basketball no matter who's in front of us. And I think that's the same approach that we took when we were there, um, and hopefully that's the same approach this team will take this weekend. Former Duke star, former NBA big man, now broadcaster Ala Abdelnabi is joining us on the drive. Some fans, when they hear... It doesn't even have to be Coach K. Any coach say, we're not the same team we were three or four weeks ago. Some of them just want to roll their eyes, right? How much can change in just three weeks? You were there for that game and that disappointing loss to the Tar Heels and Cameron. What went wrong for the Blue Devils that day? And what has gone right for them as you've seen it as a basketball analyst since then? From the outside on that day in Cameron, Coach K's last home game, it just seemed like there was a lot of distractions. Um, I, I tried at the moment to put myself in the current player's you know, position yeah. and try to imagine what that would be like because it wasn't just an ordinary game like we were talking about earlier. Um, this was more than that. And I thought perhaps that those distractions started to seep in a little. You saw Carolina just out-execute Duke. Duke seemed a step slow, and I thought a lot of that had to do with all the things leading up to the game. Um, And that's the the key now, is all these things that are going to lead up to this even bigger game, you're going to have to set aside and just worry about the task at hand. So Carolina is a really, really good team. I think Duke is going to have to play big if they have a chance, because I don't know if the three-pointers are going to be enough to sustain them. Um, But I'm curious to see how that matchup unfolds. With that in mind, Duke, and you played at the NBA level, Duke has, according to the scouts, either three, four, or five future first-round NBA draft picks. And those same scouts say that Carolina might not have any. Even runner-up for ACC Player of the Year, Armando Baycott, is viewed as more of a second-rounder. Maybe Caleb Love sneaks into the first round. 
when when you look at the talent out there, do you believe that the Blue Devils, you know, have the advantages that that kind of disparity suggests? Or at this well, point, are they, you know, you're just looking at four different championship teams, as Coach K called them earlier this week. I could I could tell you that I'd rather be at our position than at Carolina's yeah. position, yeah. having them having the the horses uh, to finish a race. But at the same time, you've got to make sure that they're in shape, they're ready to go, they're in unison, they're on the same page. So these are all the t- the uh, the challenges that are ahead. But again, having gone through what they went through with last game in Cameron, that should be some fuel. But it can't be the motivating factor because you would want to win this game even if you beat Carolina a couple of weeks ago. So that can't be what motivates you because that's temporary. What has to motivate you is playing for one another, trying to get to Monday night, and trying to achieve your goals. Um, That's the key right now is to simplify it because everything around you is going to try to complicate things, but it's just basketball. And the bottom line is when you're out there, you have to play the best you can. It's that simple. Take us into the hypothetical huddle. Coach K is considered one of the greatest leaders in the history of college coaching. Is he more likely to scream to make sure that your intensity is you know, first to the floor for a loose ball? Or, or is he more likely to be even keeled because he doesn't want to jack you up too high so that you make you know, mental mistakes or those other sorts of errors? I think he's going to be even keeled, and I can just, I'll, I'll give you a little story, David. I, we used to worry as players when he got quiet, not when we not when we could hear him, <laughs> but when he but when he would go quiet for five ten minutes at a time while we're playing, you could tell that he wasn't liking what he was seeing. So he's a guy who doesn't have to say much. He doesn't have to get up in your he will choose his moments to do yeah. that to pick up the crowd to pick up the team because he's got his finger on the pulse of what's needed at any given time but at the same time he's going to give off an air of calm because he knows as a leader if you're a little frenetic we're picking up on that as a pl- as players so i i anticipate him to walk in with the stride of a guy who's been there and done that and hopefully the players will follow suit his name is Allah Abdelnabi. You can follow him on Twitter. He's a lot of fun there on basketball and a variety of other things. It's at Allah Tweets. And remember, that's A-L-A-A and then the word tweets, at Allah Tweets. Allah Abdelnabi, former Duke big man, uh, a, a fun NBA player back in the day and now in my hometown of Philadelphia. Well, great to hear your voice, man. I'm sure you'll be watching. How do you handle something like that? Is it just you and a small group of friends? Is it you and... Uh, other former Duke players, do you, do you like to be surrounded by people or not? Heck, you might even be working. I don't know your uh, Sixers schedule off the top of my head. I, I am working, actually. We've got a game tomorrow at 1230. Then we travel right after to Cleveland, and I've already checked the schedule. We landed plenty of time okay. for, the, for the game. But I'll be in my room by myself, and I can tell you, if I was at home, I'd be in the closet with the lights <laughs> off by myself. <laughs> because I am not good company when the Blue Devils are on TV. I can be in public in the first half, but when the second half comes of a close ball game, I need to be alone. I'm not very good company, David. For the record, uh, separate from basketball, I have not given up on you as the leader of the United Nations, just so you know. <laughs> I, I, you're still a relatively young man. You know I'm a big fan Something of you on and off the court. court. <laughs> I don't want to put pressure on you, Olive, but that's, that's how I feel about you, and it's great to hear your voice. 
Same here, DG. You know how I feel about you as well. I wish you all the very best, my friend. Thank you, my man. Allah Abdul Nabi of the Duke Blue Devils now of the Philadelphia 76ers broadcast team. And Will Dalton, if I remember correctly, and remember, this is my maiden voyage. I've been a guest on the drive lots and lots and lots of times. I am. Did I just make it an hour without any major FCC violations or other screw-ups? I'm really proud of that. I think you did. All right. Look at that. I'm a guest almost every day at this stage of my career on somebody's TV show, podcast, or radio show. It's been about two years that I've hosted a three-hour radio show, so I'm really proud. And I believe here on The Drive with Josh Graham, again, Josh rejoins us live from the Final Four in New Orleans in about 15 minutes or so as we come at you live today in the triad on WSJS Sports. It's time for the Big Four. Sail with the pilot for the sea. The Big Four. Boy. The Big Four. Four. The Big Four. Four. That's a big ten, boy. There we go. The Big Four, brought to you by Budget Blinds of North Winston-Salem and Mount Airy. Serving Northern Sight, Stokes, and Surrey Counties. Online at BudgetBlinds.com. All right, DG, you ready? I am ready. I Will Dalton, I believe you kind of... I've got some stuff you for you. You take the wheels to the Lamborghini for a little while here, right? Yeah. And I'm kind of your co-pilot for a little That's while. That's right. Just right. a few minutes. Just a few. Give you a little breather. <laughs> All right, so we'll go four, three, two, and then one. All so right. Number four. Now, Josh already hit on this earlier. Armando Baycott. Uh, where's my button? Armando. There it is. There it is. So Armando... He thanked that reporter, Jeff Goodman. Jeff Goodman's from the stadium, I think that's where he writes for. Yes. Uh, and he called the heels soft earlier in the year. True. Um, and Armando obviously took exception to that. And I just, when I saw that come, I think I saw that come across my Instagram feed first. And it just, you know, Armando, when he clapped back at that, not clapped back in a toxic way, just, you know, just like, hey, we remembered that, you know? Well, here's the funny thing about that. And I've been around long enough. If you go back to the old days, I mean, before I was even a young journalist in the late 1980s, coaches would have friends in the media and they would actually ask their friends in the media to write something negative about their own team. Yeah. This is back in the pre-internet days, right? Uh So that, and again, just to make this clear, the head coach at a Duke or State or Carolina would ask their buddy in the media to write something bad about their own team. Why? Because back then, everybody read the newspaper, including young basketball players, and whether they saw it or others were referring to it, it would rile them up. Coaches are always looking for ways to motivate their players, right? Yep. Why not plant a story in the local media now we call that, that, that makes fun of them or criticizes them or calls them soft yeah. in the case of Uh, Jeff Goodman of Stadium. What cracks me up, though, is that former Carolina player Jason Capel, he wore the light blue uniform. He is now an assistant coach under his brother Jeff Capel for the Pitt Panthers of the ACC. After Pitt went to the Dean Dome and beat the Tar Heels, Jeff Capel, former Tar Heel, called the Tar Heels soft after the Panthers upset the Heels in what was clearly their worst loss of the season. And Jeff Jason Capel, by the way, didn't use the word soft. 
He used words that I'm not allowed to use without an FCC fine yeah, coming That would get way. you the FCC right? complaint. That would do it. So, you know, whatever motivates you, Armando. Whatever motivates you, man. But uh, Jeff Jeff Goodman wasn't the only guy calling oh, the Tar Heels no, soft. No. One of your own was calling you soft. Yeah. And for a long time, it was not an inaccurate criticism. Right. All right, number three, as we go down the list, Coach K, as we switch to the other side of this thing. Coach K said that he hasn't been focused on that, you know, storybook ending that everybody's been saying that this has been his farewell tour and that big spectacle over in Cameron that got ruined by the heels a couple weeks ago. Uh, He said, and I got some audio for this, he said that that's not been his focus at all, and I'll go ahead and play that for you. Somewhere in your preparation for uh, the game on Saturday, I think you have to be all in on Saturday and then accept the consequences of it. Whatever happens, then I'll feel good about it. You know, I didn't do this season to have a storybook. I did it (laughs) because I wanted to coach one more year and I wanted to have a good succession plan for our program. Be here now, says Coach K. Let me just say this. I have seen a lot of criticism from the Carolina side of this rivalry toward Mike Krzyzewski this year. Oh, it's all about him. Hubert makes it about Mm -hmm. the players, but Kay decided to make his last season all about him. Listen, I know the world is filled with lazy, ignorant, cheap shot artists, as I like to call them. Uh I have been on the wrong end of those people many times in my 35-year career. It takes effort to be fair to another human being. Whether they're a coach, a player, a team, your neighbor, it takes effort to be fair. Having known Coach K for 35 years, I could give you a list of his less desirable qualities. I could. He's an imperfect human being like the rest of us. But the idea that he made his announcement when he did so that he could be the center of attention for the next 12 months is ridiculous. I'm a Carolina fan and I don't don't buy that. It is ridiculous. Please Get more than two or three brain cells involved when you're going to attack any person's integrity. Again, I can tell you Coach K's lesser qualities. He has them, but he has far more good qualities. And it doesn't take but four or five brain cells to realize he wants his legacy to include giving his successor, John Shire, the best chance to succeed. If the last 12 months were filled with doubt about who was going to follow Mike Krzyzewski, they wouldn't have been able to, re- to sign the number one recruiting class in the country. Like, I'm not a- I am not asking you to be a Rhodes Scholar. I- I'm just asking you to think a little bit. He was the center of attention as a byproduct of a plan that was designed to maximize John Shire's chance of success as his successor. And you know what? It worked. All of his current players are emptying the effort bucket this season in his swan song. And yet, John Shire was able to sign that number one recruiting class in the country. Why? Because they made their announcement when they did. If anybody has an idea about how you show recruits in their families that there's going to be stability and you name the next head coach without ending up as the center of attention on the rocking chair circuit and, oh, this school gave them this gift, but this other school didn't. It was mostly nonsense, but the worst part of the nonsense was Coach K did it the smartest way, and if you built something in your life that was special to you, you would have done whatever it took 
to preserve it when you step away. That is the essence of what Coach K did here. Number two. Number two, Eric Church. We talked about this one before the show. Speaking of shows, he had his own sold-out show. I, I assume it's going to be tomorrow. Uh, and he has canceled that show because he he's a Carolina fan, I believe. He will be going elsewhere. He's going to be doing what we're going to be doing and watching Carolina Duke instead of performing for a sold-out crowd on Saturday. Well, I believe the show he canceled was in San Antonio. Uh, I understand he's a Tar Heel fan, but if I were Eric, and I'm, I know Eric Church's music a little bit. I'm not anti-Eric Church. I'm not one of his bigger fans. I don't really know him personally, what his track record is as a good guy or a bad guy or in between. I have seen the heavy criticism of Eric Church. Here's my two cents. If I was the guy's best friend or tour manager, I would have said, hey, dude, they do release the dates of the Final Four well in advance. If you are truly that big of a college basketball fan, you can, A, schedule, you know, refuse to schedule a concert on either the Saturday night of the Final Four. Again, they don't surprise you with those dates. They're released a long time in advance. You could avoid scheduling a concert. Or, B, the funny thing is, if you're a real Tar Heel fan, guess what? Eric Church, by scheduling that concert, that shows that you didn't think they had a chance of being in the Final Four. Was literally just running right? through my head. He did not think that they were going to the Final Four. And oh, by the way, you know what you call 99% of Carolina fans who will say out loud here in early April that back in November, December, or January, or even February, they believed these Tar Heels could end up in the Final Four. You know what you call those 99% of Carolina fans? Lay it on me. Liars. Uh-huh. That's what you call them. Liars. Yeah. Revision, revisionist historians. I heard from those people. Some of them wanted Hubert Davis fired. Are you kidding me? Now, this is an amazing story. They are an eight seed. This is one of the most stunning runs in the history of one of the most decorated programs in college basketball history. If they win the national title again, they'll be only the second eight seed. That is the lowest ever to cut down the nets at the Final Four. That is an insane level of achievement. But a whole lot of Carolina fans, I'm not saying they all jumped off the bandwagon, but the percentage who truly believed they were capable of the Final Four was really, really, really low. And if you're one of the few who still believed it, I want to see written evidence. I want to see your texts. I want to see your emails with timestamps back in February and January and December that you were still a believer. Eric Church wasn't a believer. And the last thing on this one, and I, I haven't, I was not born and raised in North Carolina, so I don't have as intense feelings about this as maybe you or a lot of your friends and colleagues will. There are a lot of people who are irritated. When a graduate of one North Carolina university not only roots for a different school, but roots for them so intensely that they cancel a music concert. Eric Church is an App State grad. Yeah. He's an Appalachian State University graduate. I love App State. My daughter is a sophomore at App State as we speak. I, I went skiing while dropping her off for the spring semester with the lovely and talented Maria. Eric Church... Loving the Tar Heels this much reminds me of what I hear from a lot of native North Carolinians who mock, whether it's the ECU fan or roots for Carolina or ECU graduate or that. 
There's something about those who are, in air quotes, proud graduates of their own school, but miraculously they drop everything for either the Blue Devils or the Tar Heels. I think Eric Church opened himself up for some of that as well. And last one on our big four, a year ago today, a year ago today, Roy Williams decided, I'm done. Isn't I've that had crazy? It's cr- and now, and, and four days later, Hubert Davis hired, and here we are. I assume this is public knowledge by now, but I've talked with Roy Williams several times since his retirement, and he laughed when he realized that it was April Fool's Day when he made his retirement announcement. Yeah, like, I, I went he, the whole day. He jo- he joked with hoping. me. This is months later. We talked. He joked with me that he really wanted to like put out another release saying "psych." Like I, I was only kidding about that retirement I announced earlier today. I mean, that would have been pretty darn impressive. Um, Roy Williams also. You follow Carolina closely, Will. I don't know if this is public knowledge or not. Roy Williams swears on a stack of Bibles that. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons he stepped away is that he was no longer the elite coach he believes he had been, or or maybe better put, that others had described him to be during all those years at Kansas and obviously as a three-time national champion with the Tar Heels. He really, and I believe him, you know me, I ask follow-up questions if I think somebody's not, you know, maybe they're just saying something to say it. Because remember, the guy is in his 70s now. He loves playing golf. He loves to travel the world with his wife, Wanda. He loves his grandchildren. I mean, I'm only 55 later this year. I can identify. I just got back from the Caribbean. I'm on the golf course all the time. I love this phase of life where there's less pressure, more fun. You still get to do some work, but you do it on your own terms, on your own timetable, at your own discretion, etc. I see the positives of that next chapter of your career, but... It really struck me that Roy Williams felt to his bones that he had stopped being an elite coach. And he pointed to games where he thought he made mistakes, and he wouldn't say players' names because he didn't want to throw them under the bus, but players that he just was not connecting with. Reading between the lines, he believes Roy Williams has, he believes Hubert Davis has found a way to connect with Caleb Love as a sophomore guard in a way that Roy Williams failed to connect with Caleb Love during his freshman season with the Tar Heels, right? And again, Roy didn't name names, but I, I'm pretty sure that's one of the examples in recent years where he just didn't feel like he connected. And isn't it fascinating, as Duke and Carolina play each other tomorrow night, Roy Williams would not have stepped away when he did, he says, unless the university president at Carolina and the athletic director, Bubba Cunningham, were on board with making Hubert Davis the guy. There's famous stories about how Dean Smith timed his, grad, his, his uh, retirement to make sure that his longtime right-hand man, Bill Guthridge, would be his successor. Coach K basically overruled the Duke administration. Again, I don't know how much this is, this is public, but I've been covering this league for 35 years, and I've broken a lot of news in that time uh, with things that even some beat writers are unaware of. At this point, I think everybody knows. But Duke was ready to hire Tommy Amaker, and Coach K basically said, I don't think so. It's going to be John Shire from my current staff. And he made that happen in part by talking Tommy Amaker out of saying yes to the Duke administration after they had been in some advanced talks. So Dean Smith kind of, sort of made sure it ended up being Bill Guthridge. Roy Williams kind of, sort of 
made sure it ended up being Hubert Davis as his successor. And Mike Krzyzewski absolutely made sure it was John Shire as his successor. Hubert Davis is in the process, this is not an exaggeration, of one of the greatest rookie head coaching seasons in college basketball history. Period. No matter what happens tomorrow night. I wrote about this recently at chapelboro.com. There are only 10 rookie head coaches ever in college basketball history who went all the way to the Final Four in their first year as a college coach. And I wrote at chapelboro.com about why Hubert's story ranks only behind one other rookie head coach's story. I'll save that for later. In the history of rookie head coaches when it comes to this NCAA tournament run, that other guy actually cut down the nets. I believe Hubert is number two on that list of rookie head coach runs, and I mean in the history of the NCAA tournament. More on that later. On the other side, Josh Graham, live from New Orleans. Later this hour, Eric Montross, live from New Orleans. The former UNC big guy and national champion as a player is now a UNC broadcaster. He'll join us from the Big Easy as well. Art Chansky literally wrote the book on the Duke-Carolina rivalry. He joins us later this hour as well. We also have five things at five still to come. You're listening to The Drive with Josh Graham on WSJS Sports. Fun fact for you. Did you know, as we go back to the host of this show, live from New Orleans, did you know that since they started seeding the NCAA tournament field in 1979, number one or number two seeds have won the tournament 76% of the time? More than three quarters of the time, it's one of the heavyweights. In this year's field, of course, Kansas is a number one. Duke and Villanova are both a number two. Only Carolina could upset that theme as the Cinderella style, but not exactly Cinderella number eight seed in this final four. Josh Graham joined us at this time last hour with a Tar Heel update. We sent the dude all the way to the Big Easy. We better get a Duke update as well. Josh, what's going on in Nolens? I am just scared based on the updates that I'm getting to my phone via text, email, and on Twitter that Tom Hamilton, the general manager yeah. down there, is just going to walk in the studio with a bag full of money yeah. and say, please don't go, DC. <laughs> Please don't do that. But here's what I, here's what's <laughs> happening with Duke. Sight lines have been widely discussed over the last couple of hours. And when you walk in and see how big it feels, I mentioned if someone's never been to the Final Four before, walking into a football se- se- yeah. uh, stadium and seeing the floor where it's located and all the fans and the idea that this thing's going to be filled up, it's it's really overwhelming and hard to comprehend if you've never seen it before. Duke doesn't think it's going to be much of a problem for its shooters trying to adjust to depth perception and shooting. They think that playing in the uh, Carrier Dome in Syracuse and the way that they dominated there is going to translate well. And Hubert Davis, he doesn't think it's much of a big deal either. He says, man, I played in the Final Four, and I played in one of these stadiums, and I shot pretty well, and I shot pretty well in the NBA in my career too. It's basketball. If you're open, take the shot. But the funniest exchanges of the day, DG, came to what was actually to a similar question. First, Brady Manick, who looks like a country-type dude, has the the long beard and all, was asked about Eric Church canceling his concert for Saturday, Carolina superfan and Appalachian State graduate. 
And he said, dude, it's crazy because I was in Oklahoma just last year and I was listening to his music while sitting on my couch and now he knows who I am. Yeah. And that's a crazy thing for me to comprehend. So then that, so that's the Carolina side of it. On the Duke side of it, though, Paulo Boncaro was asked what he thought of Eric Church canceling the concert to go see Duke and Carolina, and this is what Paulo had to say. Uh, yeah, Eric Church, I don't know who that is, but... <laughs> um, yeah, no. Shout out to him, though, you know, coming to, even though he's supporting another team, you know, shout out to him coming to watch. Fans, I'm sure he'll have another show. I don't know who he is, but shout out. That's to funny. Him. Hey, since that was Paolo Bancaro, and of course you can drop any other Duke Nuggets on us at any time. But one of the biggest changes I think in this Duke team since they were embarrassed at home by Carolina in that Mike Shashevsky swan song game in front of the Cameron Crazies is that Paolo Bancaro more consistently looks like the best player on Duke, and the guy who's going to be a top five NBA draft pick. It's it's not easy to become that this late in the season, but it, it feels like he's become that. Can you detect you know, from Coach K, from the Duke players or otherwise, that the puzzle pieces are fitting together, not just in ways that get them this far, but you know, maybe that sixth NCAA title? Absolutely. Paolo was candid when talking about it because I think the way it was couched by someone I don't want to say you were playing bad in a stretch in February. And Paulo cut off the reporter and said, no, 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 I was playing poorly. Wow. Like, there was a seven-game stretch where Paulo was scoring well below his average and the efficiency numbers weren't very good. And he said there was a time in the season where Coach K approached him and said, listen, these are some of the areas that you're going to have to improve on if you want to make it in the NBA and, and accomplish your dreams, not just in college, but – even beyond that, I don't know if it was one specific uh, coming to Jesus moment, if you will, but or if it was something a little bit more progressive. But Paulo says there have been conversations between him and Coach K that led to his elevation of play. And when you look at a game like Texas Tech, the number one defense in all of college basketball from an efficiency standpoint, and see Paulo scoring 22 points in that game, and Paulo also getting to the basket at will when Duke needed him most against Michigan State in the Sweet 16. There's no question. When you talk about Duke and what makes Duke Duke this year, don't want to get all Pete Gillen on you here. Not going to reference, yeah. like, leave it to Beaver or anything of yeah. that sort, even though I just did. It's, it's Paulo Boncaro that comes first. He is the top guy on the scouting report. There's no question. You mentioned in your visit with us last hour, Josh Graham joining us live from New Orleans here on The Drive, WSJS Sports. You mentioned um, visiting with the CBS slash Turner crew that is going to have the call this weekend, which is just awesome, an awesome part of your trip and, and your special access there. Did they get into sort of the the magnitude of this Duke Carolina element, Josh? Because you know the deal. In some college basketball regular seasons, not every year, but some years, the most watched regular season game is Duke Carolina, and the second most watched game is Duke Carolina. And... and uh, I've seen enough NCAA tournaments where I've seen the needle move when it's either Duke or Carolina in a certain game, whether it's a semifinal or not. And now you have these two super heavyweights going head-to-head for the first time in the history of a tournament that's been around since the 1930s. Do they have expectations along those lines? Because other than something like the Super Bowl, this is going to be about as big a TV audience as we have for anything involving a state of North Carolina team. 
there's no question about it. But DG, I think it would have been that way from their perspective, the CBS Sports Crew's perspective, even if you take Carolina out of the equation. Mm -hmm. I remember Jim Nance and I were talking in Winston-Salem when he was being enshrined in the National Sports Media Association Hall of Fame banquet back in December. I believe you were there as well. And you, he, he, he was mentioning, I have no doubt where I'm going to be in March. Wherever Duke is in Coach K's final season, that's where we're going to be. And how cool would it be if Coach K got to the Final Four? Not even then did Jim Nance, myself, probably you or anybody else think that not only would he be in the Final Four, but it would be against Carolina, which you referenced is often the most highly rated regular season game or college basketball game, period, in each season. So when you start thinking about what the ratings for a game like this could be, I don't even know where to go to start thinking about a potential measurement or metric. He is Josh Graham. Any more Duke Nuggets before I tell you proudly that I executed the big four fairly well in your absence? (laughs) And I'm looking forward to five things at five with great excitement. Yeah, you you executed it well. I haven't gotten texts about that. I'm, <laughs> I'm very proud that you got that done. And I'm glad that nobody's walked into the studio at this point offering you a bag of money. But I also want to say thank you to, uh, again, the folks at Beamer Tire and Auto, yeah. the Carolina Cobras, who season I think starts in about a month or so, and the folks at SJS for having me here, yourself for being in studio as well. And I can't wait to go back and listen to what you're doing. And uh, the feedback's been fantastic. So I'll try to get some more good stuff. Also try to figure out what the dinner plans are going to look like in New Orleans tonight. And I'll report back to you in an hour. If you pass a seven-foot-tall Caucasian gentleman on his phone, it might be Eric Montross calling into your show. So you can just elbow him on your way by. (laughs) That's my next guest live from New Orleans. On yeah, the drive with Josh Graham. Right I just walked right past him. Seriously? Yeah, That's sure really funny. Yeah. That is okay. really funny. I was just goofing I didn't around. I to him, so you probably wouldn't remember that, but I just walked past him. That is really good. Uh, hey, thanks for the update. We're going to talk to you again next hour. Thanks, DJ. All right, bud. That's Josh Graham. Remember, as always, you can follow Josh on Twitter here during March Madness or any other time. He's at Josh Graham Radio. I am at David Glenn Show. And you can find my work on March Madness and other things at chapelborough.com. A lot of stuff on Hubert Davis, a lot of stuff on the Duke-Carolina rivalry, and other things you'd expect given my 35 years of ACC roots at this time of year. We are on the cusp of one of the biggest events in the history of our state, sports-wise. It's Duke-Carolina in the national semifinals tomorrow night. On the other side, we brought you... Former Duke big man Allah Abdul Nabi earlier. We bring you former Carolina big man Eric Montross on the other side. He was part of Dean Smith's, not just part, he was one of the best players on Dean Smith's 1993 NCAA title team, which the Tar Heels, by the way, won in the city of New Orleans. A little piece of trivia for you. New Orleans has only hosted the Final Four five times. This is number six. The first time it was 1982. Ever heard of Michael Jordan, James Worthy, and Sam Perkins? They gave Dean Smith his first NCAA title where? In New Orleans. 11 years later, it was New Orleans again, and it was the Tar Heels again cutting down the nets. The Heels have not been back to New Orleans since, at least not for a Final Four. So if you believe in that kind of venue or city mojo, 
That might be one thing you want to put in the Carolina column. Eric Montross, now a broadcaster for the Tar Heels, joins us next on The Drive. Welcome back to The Drive. Eric Montross live from New Orleans here in just a minute. Appreciate Josh Graham dropping by his own show again. He'll be back in our third hour as well. We are nearing five things at five which I look forward to, to with great excitement and anticipation. My name is David Glenn. I've been covering this college basketball stuff for 35 years, and I am thrilled to be back in this chair today on WSJS. Josh Graham is a former intern of mine and has become a good friend of mine, as is Eric Montross, now a UNC broadcaster, of course, the former national champion for the Tar Heels back in 1993 when he was a player for Dean Smith. Art Chansky, who literally wrote the book on the Duke-Carolina basketball rivalry, is going to join us a little bit later this hour. Then we'll get to the five things at five, and then one more visit with Josh Graham live in New Orleans as the world, not just the state of North Carolina, but the world, looks forward to Duke-UNC on this special stage for the very first time in a history that goes back over more than 100 years and more than 250 head-to-head matchups. We have him now, Big E, Eric Montrose. Welcome to The Drive. How are you? Hey, man. How are you, DG? I'm doing very well. Excited to talk with you. I imagine if things go sideways and your coach is a legend like Dean Smith, you just say to yourself as a young player, oh, well, I play for Dean Smith. I have nothing to worry about, right? If things went sideways under a rookie head coach, e.g. Hubert Davis this year, what do you think enabled Hubert to just keep everybody together and allow for this amazing resurgence, which has really turned out to be one of the better stories in Carolina basketball history? Yeah, you know, DG, I think that Hubert is not trying for perfect. Um, you know, I think that he he and his team recognize that um, there are going to be mistakes through the season. There are going to be some that he makes. There are going to be some that the team makes. Even if they're well aligned with the messaging, there may be some times where translation has been a little, little difficult. And uh, I think the message has always been about persistence and preparation and effort and just trying to make sure that you're doing the things that you are supposed to do, that you are aligned with the coaches, with and that the coaches and players have a, have a clear communication. And I think that's been really the difference in the success in the last six weeks versus the struggles in the weeks prior to that, because this team, and I think the coaches, just had to figure out the communication. Um, and to this point, they're figuring it out, and they're doing pretty darn well doing at the same time. Eric Montrose is joining us on the David Glenn Show. He has a national championship ring from back in 1993. He is in New Orleans, of course, as tar- part of the Tar Heel broadcast crew with play-by-play guy Jones Angel. If you had to bullet point what has improved in the most important ways between those Tar Heels that were embarrassed at home by Duke and these Tar Heels that beat Duke in Durham and, of course, have gone on to these last four victories – to get them to the final four, what's on that short list for you? I think they're playing together. They're also really want to find each other's strengths and identify them and use them. And that could be finding Leaky Black, the best guy to guard. It could be 
making sure that Caleb Love uh, is uh, has a driving lane as opposed to just uh, a perimeter shot. It could be Armando Baycott or R.J. Davis um, setting up their screening role and making sure that they're rolling the same way and, and that they're aligned with their communication patterns. So I think that as much as anything, um, it's this team has collectively decided that they are better as a unit than they are individually. And although that sounds like a almost pathetically simple message and cliche at that, uh, I think that um, that is what they have determined and they're having fun as a unit. And that fun is occurring both defensively and offensively. And, and that's really the mark of a good team. I don't think you'll give away any trade secrets with your answer to this question, but what is your educated guess on how Hubert Davis will use Leaky Black, one of the country's best defenders, given that he slowed down Paolo Bancaro earlier this year, he slowed down and really shut down A.J. Griffin, the Blue Devils sharpshooter, earlier this season, but but obviously Leaky can't guard two people at one time. No, he can't, but we'd like to, uh, you know, it's funny, I, I had to giggle today, Hubert Davis, who said this, uh, earlier in the year, said it again today. He said, "You know, I'd like to like to cut Leaky into about four parts <laughs> because we need we need him. There are going to be four guys at any one time on the Blue Devil team that are pros that are going to be able to score twenty. And uh, and and I'm paraphrasing that a little yeah. bit, but the point the the part that was not was I want four of Leaky. <laughs> and so um, you know, I, I think that the one of the really great moves that Hubert made this year. And he said it was a night before watching film and it was a kind of a light bulb moment for him was to put Leaky Black on Kihei Clark with Virginia. And it just absolutely upset the apple cart. Now, I'm not so sure that the Jeremy Roach translation that that works, um, but I think that there are so many keys and Jeremy Roach has been one of the most important, again, in my opinion, from an outside, certainly not on the inside of the Blue Devil locker room or their game plan, but uh, it seems really painfully obvious that the adjustment from having Trevor Keels to Jeremy Roach um, has made the last 10-11 games um, a much more potent team offensively and defensively, not so much isolation of Bancaro on the wing, which Bancaro may love, but the team is not as good. And so um, if we're lucky, Bancaro will isolate all game tomorrow. <laughs> and, and, and then that will negate the rest of the players. My guess is that Jeremy Roach is um, coming up with uh, a game plan, as Coach K, of course, would indicate that, that will include all those guys. And that's a tough one to, uh, to pin down. UNC's Eric Montross is joining us on The Drive. There is a famous story from your playing days, where y'all in preseason practice saw a doctored photo of the New Orleans Superdome, which was the Final Four site that year. And, of course, New Orleans is, again, the Final Four site this year. Hubert Davis did something similar before this season. I knew your coach. I covered your teams. And Coach Smith was way more often playing down expectations publicly toward the fans, toward the media. And he's such a fundamentally humble guy that I thought it was curious that he would basically be telling you guys prior to your first practice, 
y'all are good enough to win the NCAA title this season, and sure enough, you did. What did you make of that story then? How did you react to it as a young 20 or so something year old? And what did you make of, I don't know if it was a public story prior to this week, but these Tar Heels are living their, their own version of that kind of story. You know, DG, it's interesting. Um, I'll, I'll give you a, a little bit of a lens in on what happened with Coach Smith with that. Um, that was actually, um, so he did put in, a, back then I don't think we would have called it Photoshop because right. I don't think that had been invented <laughs> yet. But let's just say whatever whatever magic happened, uh, you could doctor a photo, right? Yeah. But um, we ended up, so so I'll, I'll try and make this quick for you. We ended up with an 8 by 10 uh, picture uh, and superimposed on the picture. It said 1993 NCAA champions, North Carolina Tar Heels. And it was a picture of the inside of this, of the Louisiana Superdome. Yeah. Um, the picture stayed in our lockers all year. Nobody ever took it down. It was actually on the corner of a small mirror that it had been pasted into or just uh, taped into Scotch tape. Um, the reason why it was there and unbeknownst to us, we had actually created the opportunity based on our conversation with coach Smith and the other coaches the day before when our team set goals going into that season. So we had had a team meeting in which we set the goal to end up there in April. Um, and then coach turned that into actually an action item and put it in our lockers. So uh, you're right. It would have been out of character for coach Smith to assert that on us. Yeah. Um, but because it was something that came from us organically, it was something that he could get behind. So this year, uh, I think Hubert was asserting a little bit as he started to, um, assert himself as a coach with his communication. And I think his communication skills are so good, but I think at any time you have a new introduction into communication, a set of communication skills, you have to get used to it. You have to identify what's what, which are the action items, which are the ones that he's just kind of saying passively. And, uh, and that was the beginning for them. So it's, I didn't know about this either until this week when he uh, let into that. Last thing for you. And I only have about a minute. I, cu- I grew up as a young journalist covering your teams as you were growing up as a young basketball player, and I remember how good you were as a whole bunch of juniors and seniors with, with you know, an improved Donald Williams as a sophomore. Like, it wasn't crazy six months before the Final Four to say that you guys could do that. With all due respect to Hubert and this year's team, I mean, as an outsider, I just didn't see that. I, I-, I just... What made sense in, in the fall of 1992, just, just did, for whatever reason, just as just me speaking, didn't make sense in the fall of 2021. Uh, do you see this as sort of, even in your eyes, being up close and personal, one of the more surprising stories, given the where the heels were after that home loss to Pitt and where they are right now? Absolutely. Okay. 100%. 100% behind you on that. I think that it is. Um, it would be, um, uh, we may all have, especially for those of us who have worn the Carolina jerseys, it's hard for us to go against our heart, and yeah. our heart wants this team to be fantastic. But in the fall, even through midway through the winter, this team wasn't fantastic. In fact, they were a challenge to describe sometimes because of their inefficiencies. But right now, it has become a different team modeled after their coach. And when you listen to these players, they are marching to the drum of Hubert Davis. And Hubert Davis 
has this team captivated. He has them enthusiastic. Uh, he has them confident. And, uh, and they believe wholeheartedly that they're going to go in tomorrow night and they're going to send the Blue Devils back to Durham after their first game in the Final Four. Good stuff. Eric Montross live from the Big Easy. Have fun this weekend, man, and thanks, as always, for the time. It's always a good time, and sure appreciate uh, being on your show, David. Appreciate it. That's Eric Montross here on The Drive, WSJS Sports. Josh Graham will rejoin us later from New Orleans. Art Chansky literally wrote the book on the Duke-Carolina rivalry. The first was called Blue Blood, and it was really good, and then he did it again. It was called Blue Blood 2. He knows as much about Duke-Carolina, its history, its past, its present, and all the rest as any person on planet Earth. He joins us next on The Drive. Welcome back. David Glenn in for Josh Graham. Josh will rejoin us live from the Final Four in New Orleans next hour. We also have five things at five coming up in the not-too-distant future. One of the best play-by-play men in America, Ian Eagle, will join us in about 30 minutes. And joining us now, a guy who has covered sports in the great state of North Carolina for a half century. And in my opinion, he is one of the greatest sports authors in the history of our state. And he knows more about the Duke-Carolina rivalry specifically, I believe, than any human being who has ever walked the face of the earth. He has become a friend of the program, and he is truly an expert in this particular corner of the sports universe. Art Chansky, welcome to The Drive. How are you? I'm great, Dave. That was exactly the way I wrote it down for you. (laughs) I knew you'd get a kick out of that. Hey, man, you have covered this seriously for a half century when you saw the very unlikely possibility, even though they were on the same side of that bracket when it came out, of the Tar Heels and the Blue Devils going head-to-head for the first time in the NCAA tournament, when you saw it go from that improbability to the probability and then a reality, what were the first few things that popped into your mind? Well, I never thought it would happen because it's never happened. And for all the great seasons both programs have had, They've only been to the Final Four once, and that's when Carolina was supposed to win and Duke was supposed to lose, and the opposite happened. Right. So, But I'll tell you, after the Baylor win, I did look at it and started to think about it. I thought Carolina would have trouble uh, with UCLA, and I really thought Duke would have trouble with Texas Tech. And they both had big breaks when you think about it. Uh, Carolina avoided uh, because the St. Because of St. Peter's, they avoided having to play Purdue, which beat them earlier in the year. And Duke, of course, got Arkansas instead of Gonzaga. So they both got, I'd say, epic breaks coming into this thing. John Feinstein was with us a little bit earlier and talked about Coach K later saying he had a sense of relief that he ended up not facing the heels head-to-head in the Final Four back in 1991. In your books, Blue Blood and Blue Blood 2, you not only write about the athletes in this great rivalry, the coaches in this great rivalry, you write about the fun back and forth, sometimes crazy back and forth between the fan bases. What are your thoughts about this being, you know, sort of the ultimate sledgehammer for one fan base uh, where the, you know, they're both, both are reaching for the Xanax right now, Art, you know it, but there's an excitement along with that anxiety at the same time. Yeah, you know, there's going to be an element of both fan bases that uh, some of them are not even going to watch the game. They'll go to the airport and walk the concourse <laughs> because their, heart, their hearts can't take it. But, you know, David, I, I think in this particular instance, 
It is how you look at it. I think there are three ways to look at it. Is it the epic, the biggest Duke Carolina game on the biggest stage will be the uh, highest rated uh, college basketball game in the history of TV? Uh, the only thing bigger would be if they played on Monday night. Right. That hasn't happened yet. And, you know, I, I think that would be, that would be what Mike was talking about. The second thing is, I look at it as kind of a celebration of the greatest robbery in the world. We've been talking about it around here, and ESPN pumps it and so forth. But to get on the Final Four Saturday with these two teams, who both are pretty good, I think it's a celebration of the robbery. And I think that, in my estimation, it makes winning and losing a little bit, a little bit less important. And the third thing is, to me, it's a clear metaphor for the change in eras with Mike going out and Uber Davis coming in and finishing his first season yeah. uh, with a tremendous run. So it just depends, you know, how crazy you are. I mean, if you're crazy, it's going to be number one. Uh, if you have, you know, history and you like to celebrate the greatness and and uh, you don't take this rivalry right under a nose for granted, it's number two. And then if you're a historian, I think it's number three. You and I both covered the 1993 Tar Heels pretty closely. In fact, we worked on projects together back then. And neither of us were surprised later when we heard the story of Dean Smith, Dean Smith putting the Superdome, you know, the doctored photo of the Superdome saying 1993 national champions in all the Tar Heel player lockers in the preseason, which was a little, uh, you know, Dean's such a humble guy. It was Eric Matras told us earlier that, you know, he, he was kind of taken aback by it at first. But those guys all kept it in their lockers uh, for all of those months. And, of course, the premonition comes true. They end up cutting down the nets in New Orleans. When you put this year's run in perspective, now that we know that Hubert Davis pulled this Superdome back in the preseason photo uh, trick and also told family members to book their reservations for New Orleans six months in advance, you and I both know that in 1993 it was not a stretch for Dean Smith to think all those juniors and seniors and an improving sophomore Donald Williams could get him to the Final Four. This team, Art, looked dead in the water after losing at home to Pitt. Is this the most shocking run in this half century or so that you've seen from the Tar Heels? Yeah, I think so. I'd have to really look back at the years. You know, uh, Carolina uh, has been pretty consistent. Uh, when they were really good, they were really good. When they were average, they were really average. But, you know, let me tell you, um, scoop here for you, David, on your show. Yeah. Dave Hannes, the assistant coach, told me that that was not the only time that Dean Smith did that when he thought that the team had a chance, yeah. uh, like I'm not specific on the years, but I think like in 1995 when they had Stackhouse and Wallace and in 97 and 98 when they had Carter and Jamison, he did the same thing. Uh, but since they didn't win the championship, that didn't become right. a storyline. But I think Hubert did it because Pat Sullivan is on the staff who was on that 93 yeah. team, and he, rem he reminded Hubert that he did it. And I think it was kind of motivation. Um, I, yeah, you know, I love Hubert. I think it's a great choice and I've known him for a long time. I thought early in the season, he was a little bit, uh, overly optimistic about things like players who hadn't really developed yet. He was talking about guys who were really good players and he wouldn't even put them in the game. But, uh, he, the, the way he manages team and the, and I'd say it's like a car with broken parts and new parts and he had to put them all together and get the car to running smoothly. And the way they played the last month, they're as good as anybody. I don't know what will happen tomorrow night, but Carolina's as good as anybody. Coach K emphasized this week that you can't take much 
from the two regular season matchups. The Tar Heels obviously are a much different team than the one that got crushed at home by the Blue Devils. He believes his Blue Devils are a much different team than the one that got crushed in the end by the Tar Heels in Cameron. What do you take, X and O wise or otherwise, if anything, from those two matchups as you look forward to part three tomorrow night? Well, for the first game in Chapel Hill, uh, Carolina fell behind by 20 in the first half. That can't happen. Uh, and that won't, that won't happen tomorrow night. But that, the game was over after Baycott got two fouls and he came, he took him out. And by the time he got back in, they were down by 20. And, you know, Duke always plays well in Chapel Hill and you give him a run like that. And they were really showing off their talent that night. The second game was, key to it I think you alluded to it they stayed close and that's when the pressure of the whole Mike Krzyzewski coronation and losing at home to Duke in his last game I think I think got a little tight but David you know that Carolina scored 55 points in the second half they scored 10 points in the first eight minutes they scored 45 points in the last 12 minutes wow you remember I mean that was one of the greatest offensive stretches I've ever seen. I'm not sure they missed a shot during that whole 12-minute stretch. And, and Duke just said, hey, we, you know, this is not our night. And so I think Carolina ha- obviously has to play more like it did uh, over in Cameron. And, and the thing is, it's still dangerous for Carolina because of the matchups. Who's going to guard Ben Carroll? I think you look, I'm thinking that you know, they, they may rotate some guys who don't play very much, like Justin McCoy in on Bancaro to show him a different look and, and get some, get some uh, you know, time for Leakey to work on somebody else. But, you know, it's uh, the pressure, even though the matchups don't favor Carolina, the pressure does favor Carolina because I think the pressure is still on Duke. It's Coach K's last game. Uh, it's his try for his sixth NCAA title. Uh, and how would you like the albatross to be in your career? 1,200 games you won, uh, 13 Final Fours you won, but you lost last two times you played Carolina. Yeah. That That is something that the Tar Heel fans will make T-shirts, banners, <laughs> flying over Durham in a plane, uh, you know, put on bumper stickers uh, if that happens. So I think the pressure's on Duke, but I think uh, Carolina is, is the inferior talent but as a team, it's always, David, you know that. It's always who has the best team that night. And yeah. That's why I think it'll be a great game. There are about a dozen great storylines, and Art Chansky just hit on a bunch of them. He is the author of Blue Blood and Blue Blood 2, and a whole bunch more on college basketball and the ACC and the Duke-Carolina rivalry. Art, as always, thanks for the time, man. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks. Are you going to tell me who you picked before you let me go? Uh, I actually am following the, when in doubt, follow the NBA draft capital. <laughs> so when it, if, if it's too close a call, A, I would run away from the betting window in Las Vegas. I, whatever the opposite of bet the kids college tuition fund is, whatever the, that, that's, where, that's where I am. So I'm not betting your nickel, much less my nickel. But I do think when, when you just can't make up your mind, Kansas has more NBA talent than Villanova does, and Duke has more NBA talent than Carolina does. And, yeah. you know, I could be wrong. We'll see. But you, you want to give your pick as you go? Well, um, you know, my heart's in it with Carolina because uh, even though I love the rivalry, um, you know, I'm, I'm a Tar Heel. Um, I, let me tell you this. I, I had an interview with Roy uh, that just went up on Chapel Bar today. Oh, cool. 
And uh, he, he said in that game at Cameron in the morning, he was in the clubhouse at Forest Creek with his golf buddies. And he said, guys, I don't bet. But if I bet, you know, they were 11 point favorite. He said, if I, if I would bet, I would not only would I bet on the Tar Heels to, to lose by less than 12, I think they're going to win the game outright. Wow. And last night he didn't really exactly say it when I was talking to him, but he was pretty confident. Love he it. thought that he, th- he thought the, the Tar Heels had made such strides defensively, and they're going to play very hard. So that's a great. I don't story. know. I guess that's why they're going to play the game. That's right? a great story, man. You have not let me down. John Feinstein didn't let me down. Ala Abdonabi, Eric Montross, everybody's giving me great stories today. Thanks for the time, my friend. Okay, David. See hey, you soon. Hey, Will Dalton. You know how they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I've heard You've heard that phrase, right? I've been on the air probably 30 years, right? If you add it all up, dating back to like student radio. For 30 years at the top of an hour, I've been going to break. Like for 30 yeah. years, you just, you see the clock getting to the top of the hour, you go to break. You know how proud I am that I've avoided that mistake today? I'm proud of you. On the drive with Josh Graham. Instead of the top of the hour break, we get to go to five things at five. Let's do it. It's time for the Five Things at Five. All right, people, take five. Brought to you by Precision Garage Door, where their five things are. Garage Door and Opener Repair and Replacement. Same-day service. Free new door estimates. Weekend and evening appointments at no extra charge. And calls answered 24-7. Here are the top five stories trending now. All right, now we did pretty good with the big four. We're proud of that. I am too, man. Let's keep the momentum going. All right, here we go. So number five... Uh, we're going to start with actually a question for you. I got a question for you, and right. you and Art just kind of talked about it, but I was curious. What impact, because a lot of people didn't want Carolina Duke in the Final Four yeah. to happen, whether it was Carolina fans just like, oh, I don't want to go up against Duke again. We got ours and Cameron. We don't want to do this again. Uh, or some people just thought it was going to be made about Coach K the whole time, and it was going to overshadow the celebration of the rivalry like Art just talked yeah. about. So my question to you, and we can chop it up about this, is like, how do you think it's going to affect it? One way or another, whatever the result is, how do you think it affects the rivalry? I forward? think Art Chansky nailed it. Depending on who you are as a fan, if you're that rabid, if hate is a part of what you see in this rivalry, well then, you are going to be hiding under the bed if your team loses, and you are going to be taunting that other person in the cubicle next to you or at the supermarket or the next time you run into them at work or at play. It just all depends on your perspective. I like Art's kind of more mature, more advanced, a little older, wiser. It's a celebration of the rivalry no matter who wins. But we all know fan is short for fanatic. So the majority of those two fan bases are not going to just look at it as a good old-fashioned celebration of the rivalry. Now, we saw Kentucky and Louisville play each other in a Final Four game. The rivalry didn't end. Now, does one side, does the winner on that platform have a heck of a psychological and verbal sledgehammer to use in every debate for maybe all of time? Of course the winner has that sledgehammer. But there's a pendulum aspect to this rivalry. And and just when you think Duke's got it going, 91-92 back-to-back titles, you know what? Carolina won it the next year. When Carolina won it in 2009, and it's like, oh my gosh, that's two in five years for Roy Williams. The pendulum is back to the light blue side. Hey, right. no, Duke wins it in the very next year, 2010. 
Kay recruits all those freshmen and he wins again in 2015. Oh no, the pendulum is all the way over there. But no, Roy Williams goes to back-to-back -back Final Fours, back-to-back -back title games and cuts down the nets in 2017. So of course, temporarily, somebody's going to have the ultimate unprecedented we beat you on the biggest of all stages psychological verbal sledgehammer. But how long will that last? Maybe until the next twist or turn or swing of the pendulum in one of the greatest rivalries in American sports. All right, here we go with number four, our governor. Speaking of this celebration of the rivalry, yes. our governor the other day uh, in some type of press conference, he was talking about Roy Cooper was saying that, and he declared that this is the center of the college basketball universe, which is what, I mean, if you grew up here, you already know that. Hey, listen. You know that already. I don't want to get all selfish here with Governor Cooper, but the David Glenn show, as it was called for a long time, kind of unofficially, not in the legal sense, but unofficially trademarked a handful of phrases. There was my wife. Do you remember what I call my wife, Will? The lovely and talented the Maria. The lovely and talented Maria. Trademark DG, right? What would I say on a Friday afternoon? We are halfway to... Margaritaville. That is correct. Trade, We're there now. Trademark DG. Free for all Friday. Trademark DG. There are a whole bunch of others. And I have some legal trademarks as well, just to be clear. These are for, more for fun. Do you know how long I've been using the center of the college basketball universe phrase? That's how, right, you did. How about for 20-plus years? Seriously. Now, I don't need credit. I don't want credit. I don't need royalties on it. Whatever. I'm glad that the governor of our state chose to make it official because I've made it unofficial for about 20-some years. And you know the deal. Once Duke and Carolina kept cranking out national titles, and oh, by the way, another school, NC State, has two, there's only so many schools in the whole country that have more than one NCAA title. We have three of them in one part of North Carolina. And Wake has been to the Final Four. And Charlotte has been to the Final Four. It's and insane. Davidson has had incredible runs. Of, at some point, I mean, for a long time, UCLA was the center of the college basketball universe, right? Inarguable. Just as in the 60s or 70s, I wouldn't have told L.A. they were wrong. For the last couple-plus decades, we have been the center of the college basketball universe, whether I say it or Roy Cooper makes it official. All right, we've been talking Carolina Duke all day. I'm about to switch it up on you here a little right. bit. I'm excited about this one because I'm curious to see what happens. Carolina Panthers, it's no secret that they got some quarterback issues. Uh, they have the number six overall pick. NFL draft is later this month, 28. Uh, my question for you is, where do the Panthers go? Like, what do you think the best move is for the quarterback situation? Is it drafting Kenny Pickett? Is it drafting Malik Willis? Sam Darnold, Cam, I, what, what's the move? I hate to say this, but I think of a Dr. Seuss, Dr. Seuss green eggs and ham. You ever read that as a little kid? Yeah, I skimmed it. It is not Cam. It is not Sam eating green eggs and ham. The Carolina Panthers are in big trouble at the most important position on the field. And it definitely is not Sam, and it definitely is not Cam, green eggs and ham. You better get your pick right if you choose a Kenny Pickett or a Malik Willis or somebody else with that first-round pick. That's the bottom line. Do you have a favorite line. of the two? Say that again? Do you have a favorite of those two? I can't say. You know, I'm in Caribbean mode, Will Dalton. 
When I hosted my own show every day for 20-some years, I was all over every detail in the sports world. I'm halfway to Margaritaville every day at this stage of my That's career. That's right. So You've the amount of time that I spend obsessing over the Panthers quarterback situation is really close to zero. So I respect the question. It's a good one, and you do your job well, young man. But I, re- I really just haven't done – I've been on the golf course. I, I've, been, I've been at the beach. <laughs> I've been in Jamaica. And in and and any of those places, I am not thinking about the Panthers quarterback situation. Well, I'll say this to wrap it up because we like attention to detail yes. around here. So Kenny Pickett, when Matt Rule was at Temple, you may or may not know this, Matt Rule got a verbal commitment from Ooh, Kenny Pickett. That's a great tidbit. You like that? Now, if I still had my own show every day, I'd have those kind of tidbits. Well, you train me well. Instead, I got margaritas coming out of my shoes, as Nothing the Jimmy Buffett that. song says. You've earned it. All right, we're going to go with number two. Go to a, another one of our favorites. Five things at five, five. Number two. Another one of our favorites. The Canes, who are looking really, really yeah. good. This is some fun stuff right now. Yeah. Uh, so the two, I don't know if you know this or not, the two Sebastian Ajos scored yes. the other night. It's This was really cool. Like 34 seconds apart, I found out. And One for those for the who don't Islanders. know, li- literally, both guys' name is Sebastian Ajo. Yeah, not and, related. And one is the elite player for the Carolina Hurricanes. Uh, that, that was really cool. And for those who don't follow hockey as closely, speaking of the greatest moments in the history of North Carolina sports with Duke Carolina on tap tomorrow night, and again, that game to me is on the short list of the greatest events ever connected to our state. This one obviously not on North Carolina soil, but involving two of our great programs. The Carolina Hurricanes are one of the best teams in the NHL. And the Carolina Hurricanes Stanley Cup Championship, I guess you'd call it on North Carolina ice, technically, rather than North Carolina soil. It was a home game. I was there, game seven, to beat the Edmonton Oilers a decade and a half or so ago. Man, it's almost two decades ago now. That is one of the greatest sports moments in the history of our state. No doubt about it. I know not everybody loves hockey. The TV numbers for Duke Carolina tomorrow night, that, that TV audience, seriously now, will be four, five, six, or seven times the number of people who were watching on TV as the Carolina Hurricanes clinched the Stanley Cup earlier this century. So I'm not trying to compare apples to apples here. I know it's a different world. But the Canes, along with the Colorado Avalanche, the Florida Panthers, the Tampa Bay Lightning, are the best teams in the NHL. And they have a legit shot at Stanley Cup number two thanks in part to Sebastian Ajo. So the tradition on this show is usually the number one on the big four and the five things at five is you go kind of off. You take a break from sports for cool. a couple of minutes. You get a little goofy with yeah. it. So I saw this, and it's it's just it's more of a just sit back and admire it. Like, huh? Like So number one on the list, the Canada Supreme Court has upheld a $7.2 million fine on a maple syrup thief. You know, there are people who own and run radio empires who get nervous yeah. when you ask me any questions that get into legal stuff or oh, social yeah. stuff. I, this was tailored for I you, mean, buddy. Their hearts skip a beat. And trust me, I, I love making powerful people nervous. I've watched it's you do it many part, times. part of my DNA. This one is not quite the hot potato that some of the other question number ones you could have thrown at me on five things at five. There is, and we don't have time to get into it, But there is a fascinating story about how the nation of Canada are wonderfully friendly neighbors to our north 
in the great old USA. There's a fascinating story on how they as a country handle who's allowed to make maple syrup. I'm not kidding. So, like, we just go to the grocery store and you got how many different choices if you like maple syrup, right? Something on your pancakes. It's no joke up there. It it is a serious part of their economy. And they're dead serious about who's allowed to make it and how much you're allowed to make. And it's like getting a license to make, make maple syrup. But... Like, people hurt each other over maple syrup. And Canada is one of the nicest countries in the world. So that they, 60 Minutes did a segment on the maple syrup industry in Canada. So $7.2 million of fine. You got to sell a lot of maple syrup to make $7.2 million back. That's your five things? <laughs> that five. I love it. All right, so we go back, I believe... Now we go back to we go back to Josh Graham live from New Orleans later this hour. On the other side, we go to one of the best play-by-play men in the history of our country. He had the call as UNC beat St. Peter's to advance to this final four. Ian Eagle, you hear him on CBS Sports broadcasts of the NFL every week during pro football season. You hear him as the voice of the Brooklyn Nets in the NBA and on other games. And you hear him regularly on college basketball and a whole lot of other sports as well. He's become a great friend of the program. Ian Eagle next on The Drive. It's time for the five things at five. All right, people. Take five. Brought to you by Precision Garage. Joining us now, when American sports fans are asked to rank their favorite play-by-play people in the country, his name often ranks at or near the top of the list. More importantly to me, when the play-by-play people that I know, people in his profession, are asked to name the best in their business, his name comes up atop or near the top of that list as well. He's become a good friend of the program from CBS Sports, recently on the call for UNC against St. Peter's. You also hear him on NFL games on CBS. He's the voice of the Brooklyn Nets of the NBA. He does all sorts of other things, too. Ian Eagle, welcome to The Drive. How are you? Uh Uh-huh, DG. It feels like a reunion. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, man. You know, when I think of CBS Sports, I think of you, seriously, but I also think of properties like the NFL, like the Masters and other golf, and for as long as I can remember, I think of the NCAA tournament. Can you just give yeah. us a broad brush view uh, of where that fits in the American sports portfolio? Because, you know, I live in college basketball country, but at least once a year, college basketball kind of becomes the center of our sports universe. Yeah, I think where it differs from all the other sports is that the nature of the upset is so drastic compared to other sports. You could have a 1-8 matchup in the NBA, in the NHL. Uh, In the NFL, you could have a division winner or a number one seed get clipped. And it doesn't have the same effect as the NCAA tournament when a 14 or 15 or 16 seed, which has now happened in the NCAA tournament, actually occurs. Because the disparity between the 1 and the 16 or the 2 and the 15 is so vast in terms of normally talent level, uh, facilities, 
budget, fan base, you name it, go up and down that list. So let's take a St. Peter's as example this year. DG, if I drove you through Jersey City and I said, hey, look, we're going to pass St. Peter's. I want you to keep a lookout for it. We'd go right by it. Yeah. You'd say, wait, I missed it? I'd say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was that building right there. You missed it. And they're playing Kentucky, and they beat them in overtime in the first round of the tournament. I don't think Kentucky fans have any understanding of what we're talking about, the gym that they play in. And it really is a gym. It's not an arena. It's not Rupp Arena. There were 434 fans in attendance for their season opener. Wow. 434. That's it. It was not on television. So the idea that this team could knock off a blue blood, you just don't have it in any other sports. You might have it in a tennis match, and you may have it at a golf event. I get it. Individual sports, yes. Team sports, not to this degree. We've been goofing around with state of North Carolina sporting events and, and trying to put in perspective not only Duke Carolina, which is always a big deal, obviously. They've been playing each other for 102 years. But this is the first time, crazy yeah. enough, that they've met, of course, on this big stage. And when I look at audience sizes, I mean, you're a multi-sport guy. When the Carolina Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup in 2006, there were roughly 5 million TV viewers for Game 7. So 5 million. That, that's not mm -hmm. the most popular sport in America, but you know it's somewhere in the top 5 or 6, right? 5 million for the clinching game. When Payne Stewart won the 1999 U.S. Open held here on North Carolina soil, Pinehurst number 2, he edged out Phil Mickelson, another mega-famous golfer, for that uh, major championship, about 10 million TV viewers. Mm. Now, you, you know, and I know you'd tell us, the NFL is the king when it comes to these numbers. Like, when the Panthers lost the Super Bowl a few years ago, I guess 2016 that was, to the Broncos, 114 million were watching yeah. on TV and, and another million Insane. were streaming it. Help us understand college basketball, because I know this sport gets into the 20 millions, uh, it used to get into the 30 millions, and other than the NFL, I just don't know how many other sports are doing that. Yeah, and I think the reason behind it, DG, is it's a three-week event, and it becomes appointment viewing. And the one-and-done format is what changes everything. NBA playoff series, you could win the first game of a series in a yeah. best-of-seven. You could win the first two games. And there are still people that are like, nah, I'm not going to watch until it's the elimination game. There are many sports fans that are into every aspect of the sport that they follow. But there are a lot of people on the periphery with the NCAA tournament that don't watch college basketball during the year. They don't follow yeah. it. They don't know it. But something about the NCAA tournament, whether it's the bracket, whether it's the idea of David versus Goliath, uh, whether you get these mega matchups in the NCAA Final Four like we're getting this year with North Carolina and Duke, there's something that draws you in and it gets the casual fan interested. Uh, I think because this is a college basketball fan's dream to see North Carolina and Duke play in the NCAA tournament and now play for a right to win a championship, it does bring it up a notch. And because Coach K is retiring, that's a whole other angle. They just have all sorts of storylines and narratives. And the crazy part for me, DG, when I prepare for this event, I just think about the 24 years of doing it and the names 
the Rolodex of yeah. names that I've had through the years, some that have gone on to stardom in the NBA and have become Hall of Fame players, and most who go on about their lives and don't play basketball for a career and have that one memory, and you know it might be a little cliche, but that one shining moment that they can share with their friends and eventually with their kids and then down the road, their grandkids. And that's why uh, on a broadcasting level, I've always felt this responsibility to make sure you do right by the competitors. For most of them, this is it. This is the highest level they'll ever play. This is the biggest stage they'll ever play on. So I keep that in the back of my mind whenever I call these games. And I just want to make sure even if walk-ons get into an NCAA tournament game for nine seconds, Say their name. Yeah. Make sure it's said on television so that they have an actual record of what took place. Ian Eagle is joining us from CBS Sports. He had recently the call for UNC's win over St. Peter's, which of course catapulted the heels into this Final Four matchup against the Duke Blue Devils. So we had John Feinstein, whom you know, a guy named yep. Archansky, a local author here whom you may know, they both literally wrote books on Duke Carolina, right? And Chansky said that this is one of the most surprising runs that he's ever seen. In other words, Carolina's been to the Final Four 21 times, more than any other school. But a lot of times you kind of thought they would be there. Maybe they were a one seed or a two seed. This is an eight seed for Hubert Davis. What did you either glean during your prep for UNC St. Peter's or see during the Tar Heels' pretty convincing victory there that helps explain this story because we're just not used to seeing the Heels as Cinderella is too strong yeah. a word, but they are the only eight seed in a bit in a Final Four with a a one seed and two two seeds. Yeah, and I think the last part of of your lead up is what really resonates. So St. Peter's was the ultimate underdog. Yes. They had the fairy tale story, and each step along the way, that underdog status worked in their favor. And I think the higher seed, Kentucky, then Murray State, then Purdue, got tight, and they felt the pressure. And certainly in the Sweet 16 against Purdue, the swing vote was in play. The North Carolina fans and the UCLA fans that were in attendance in Philadelphia were all in on St. Peter's. And they might have had their own agendas as to why, because they wanted to see an upset because they wanted their team, UCLA or North Carolina, to play a lower seed and have an easier path into the Final Four. Whatever it might be, I've seen it. It happens every year in the NCAA tournament. The difference this year with North Carolina is they were not in that same role as those other teams that I mentioned. Even Murray State, they had the best record in the regular season, the best record in the NCAA tournament when action began. So Murray State was a team that believed they could be a Sweet 16 team, even if they didn't play St. Peter's. They had their sights set on playing Kentucky. Those two programs have never met. Talk about Duke, North Carolina, and the NCAA tournament. Murray State and Kentucky have never played, yeah. ever. They're in the same state. So the point with North Carolina, to me, is they already had felt the underdog roller coaster ride this season expectations because you're unc then the realization early in the year like mm, this is not your typical unc <laughs> right. team they're not going to plow through and i think it hardened them and they didn't feel the immense pressure that kentucky felt that purdue felt going against st peter's they were loosey-goosey 
And when we hit the first time out, Jim Spinarkle and I looked at one another, and there was that feeling of, uh-oh, this is what we were expecting at some point with St. Peter's against Kentucky, maybe against Murray State, against Purdue, and it never came. They never trailed by more than six points. North Carolina, they threw the first shot, the first punch, and St. Peter's never recovered, and then UNC cruised from there. I like their makeup. I like the fact that they're playing without fear. It's a little different now because it's Duke and because all of those old feelings are going to come back, and it's been the talk of the NCAA tournament, the fact that these two programs are playing, and the fact that the win that they had at Cameron is going to go down as one of the great wins in program history and one of the biggest disappointments in Duke's program history. So you have the backdrop of that with this particular game that just adds a little more spice to something that already is a very tasty dish. We have it all. Coach K's last season, Duke's NBA talent against Carolina's late resurgence. We got a little bit of everything, and it is on Turner Sports this weekend, but it will be Jim Nance and friends from CBS with the television call. Ian Eagle, friend of the program, thanks for dropping by, man. It's always great to hear your voice. Yeah, DG, ditto. Great to hear you, and uh, you're right where you belong, in front of the microphone. Thank you, my friend. On the other side, this program is called The Drive with Josh Graham. My name is David Glenn. I am in his chair today. Why? Because Josh Graham is covering the heels of the Devils in New Orleans. Josh joins us, rejoins us, live from the Big Easy. Next. Welcome back to the show. David Glenn in for Josh Graham, who's about to rejoin us live from New Orleans. Quick heads up, before the end of this hour, I will tell you something that 74 consecutive NCAA champions had in common that Duke definitely has, Kansas definitely has, but that Villanova and UNC, the other teams in this year's Final Four, probably do not have. little history for you. What you do with that information is entirely up to you. Just a little teaser for what we're going to get into after we we're rejoined by the host of this program. It is called, after all, The Drive with Josh Graham. We're coming at you today on WSJS Sports. Josh is in New Orleans, exactly where he should be. Welcome back to your show, Josh. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> it's been just a crazy 30 to 45 minutes over here, DG. You know, how many miles are Duke and Carolina separated? I don't know if you've done the actual... There's some. It's you know, eight to nine, right? Disagree with this. Yeah. Yeah, eight to eight to nine miles. Well, walking here in the bowels of the Superdome, like about thirty feet in front of me, is the Duke locker room, which is separated by about I just walked it thirty feet from the Carolina locker room. The Duke and Carolina locker rooms are separated by about thirty wow. feet in this massive venue here at the. Uh, the Caesar Superdome, and I just had a chance to add some triad flavor to this uh, to catch up with Steve Forbes, who's watching Alondis Williams in the first half of the East-West nice. Reese's All-Star game. Uh, Alondis with no points in the first half, but a couple of assists, a steal, and a rebound. We'll see if he can fill up the stat sheet a little bit more in the second half. So some local triad flavor where Steve Forbes is watching Alondis Williams play ball a little bit. 
Josh Graham is joining us live from New Orleans at the Final Four. Duke Carolina, of course, late tomorrow night, the latter game in the Final Four. Winner advances to Monday night's national championship game. You all know the biggest storyline. These two have never gotten together on the sport's biggest stage. Follow Josh on Twitter, at Josh Graham Radio. So your first update was on the Duke half of the equation, or the Carolina half. The second was on the Duke half of the equation. So what, what goodies... Are you bringing us Big Easy style this time? How about we do a little bit of both with one soundbite here. All right. Coach K is in his final year. We all know that. Hubert Davis in his first year. John Shire's about to get ready for his first season. And K told us earlier in the week when I asked him about the level of optimism he has for Shire, watching what Hubert just did pretty high knowing that that's a possibility when you have a lot of talent and you're coaching at a place like Duke or North Carolina. But earlier today, this was Coach K, and it's a bit of a long answer but a good one, Coach K talking about the job Hubert Davis has done in year one in Chapel Hill. Hubert's been terrific. I mean, uh, one, there's a lot of pressure taking over a program, the level of North Carolina's with the tradition of excellence that they've had. And for him to do it, he's under immense scrutiny. And they, had, they got knocked back a number of times. I, I just thought, and he, he always had poise, and he, he has great humility. And it, it, it worked together. And he had a belief in his players and in what he was doing. He, he and I did a, a thing together here yesterday and I mentioned that he's run his own race. He hasn't tried to be Dean Smith or Roy or anybody else. He's been himself in that culture, but he knows that culture. He, he's worked in it and he's played in it, and now he's adapting who he is into that culture. And I think that's a, a great way for a culture to grow. And uh, he, he, he's done a marvelous job. When I hear him describing it that way, DJ, what I think about is just how true it is that Roy, even though at every turn he would say, everything I do is just trying to emulate what Dean did, and Dean taught me everything I knew. It wasn't really true that Roy played a style that looked a lot like Dean Smith. Roy's style was distinct to the way that he wanted to play. Now, it still had the elements of what made Carolina basketball, Carolina basketball, with uh, the break and all of it. But with Hubert, you do see those elements still of Carolina basketball that are foundational. But is there a better example of Hubert adding his own flavor to things than going into the transfer portal to find Brady Manick and focusing less on offensive rebounding percentage, which is a primary stat that Roy would point to, and instead having your four shoot threes at the rate that Brady has? That's his own flavor to things. So even though Hubert won't be the one out there to admit it, saying, yes, I've done something different than what Roy has done, that is pretty clearly what we're watching right now, I think. Hey, man, I've gone back 35 years with the ACC, including UNC, and I can tell you this with authority. Hubert Davis changed more as the new head coach of the Tar Heels by a mile than Roy Williams changed or Bill Guthridge changed Obviously, Matt Doherty probably changed too many things in all the wrong ways uh, and suffered <laughs> <laughs> suffered a well-deserved fate as a result. 
but the other members of that Carolina family were tweaking. Hubert's changes were more than tweaks. He believes in combo guards more than he believes in this guy's the point guard and that guy's the shooting guard. He believes in a stretch forward like Brady Maddock. I mean, it's not that Dean or Roy never had a stretch forward, but they built the empire around the two low post presence more than any program in America. I mean, I I mean over like a half century. I'm not talking about like flavor of the decade. I'm talking about 50 years. Hubert made significant changes while, as you said, keeping major parts of the culture and major parts of the X's and O's. But yeah, man, it, those those changes didn't look like they were paying off too well for a while. Uh, Eric Matros told us as one of our guests here on your show that whereas in 1993 when Dean Smith left that Superdome photo in all the players' lockers, he said the players had talked to Coach Smith about the national title being one of their attainable goals way back in October. And he said that, that and, and of course they had a bunch of juniors and seniors and a bunch of talented players. So no Carolina fan, no media covering Carolina, in retrospect, saw that preseason photo placement with, you know, the doctored photo showing 1993 NCAA champions at the Superdome, North Carolina National Champions. It it was a logical premonition. There was nothing far-fetched about it. I don't know how Hubert Davis back in October saw this group as a Final Four contender, and that's what makes... His Superdome photo placed in the locker story, you know, just that much more amazing. I don't know how I'm, much that's hap- that, that's been part of the conversation down there in New Orleans. I, I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong on something, and I'll, I'll admit I did not see North Carolina getting to this stage. Neither I did I. That was their ceiling. Nobody saw that coming. But there's a more specific example I'd like to fess up to as if this is a therapy session <laughs> or perhaps like I'm just – trying to atone for my sins here. I don't know, maybe a confessional. But I was at the UNC Asheville game. That If you look at the box score, just go back, you look, Carolina won by 19. You're thinking, Josh, why would you go to that game where Carolina looked awesome? They didn't look awesome. They looked terrible. And Brady Manick had a post-game uh, interview in which he was so ticked off, saying, we just got to play better. We overlooked these guys. Uh, we, left, we left them open from three. They just didn't hit the threes. And after he got done with that scorched earth post-game interview, I was thinking Hubert was going to come in and do something similar. But he sat down and he said, and I felt my eyes rolling as he said it, I think we look like a team that could potentially get to the national champion. Wow. He said said that the second week of the season after a game against UNC Asheville where I thought they looked terrific. And here they are. Uh, Hubert, it's the positivity aspect of things where – after Carolina got blown out against Miami and Wake Forest, which many people viewed to be the turning point of the season, they bounced back with a win against Virginia Tech two nights later, and Brady Manick was telling the story with four minutes left to go in that game. Uh, he, he, was, um, he was the go-to guy, and he had the big baskets to decide it. What were some of the things you were thinking down the stretch? And he said, I was thinking about my coach, who the day after we got blasted, I was expecting him to be negative. I was expecting him to tear into us. And he just walked in, and he was as positive as you can be. It's almost as if we won the last two games by 20. And he remembered being surprised by that. And Armando Paycott, oh, shoot, I just brought up his name. Sorry about that, (laughs) Will. Armando. (laughs) Sorry about that. Oh, good. Uh, He said said after, uh, he said earlier today when I asked him about it, that it took the weight off their shoulders in the overtime against Baylor 
when Hubert walked up to them with Brady being ejected yeah. and Caleb Love being disqualified. He walked up to the guys and said, you guys get to play five more minutes. How cool is that? <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And that's just some of the things. Like, I mean, we should have known that Hubert's a great communicator. He went I and mean, he worked at ESPN for a few years. But, like, that, I think those are just the key points that speak to Hubert's ability to see what was possible in this team when nobody else, maybe even the team themselves, didn't see it. I've personally known Hubert since the late 1980s. I actually may be the only writer who's ever gone to his hometown in Virginia, interviewed his dad, his sister, his uncle, uh, his high school coach. I mean, it was one of those deep-dive, old-school Sports Illustrated-style feature stories that I wrote way back when he was going into his senior year at Carolina. So I know his personality really, really well. And Josh, your eye-roll story from earlier this season resonates with me because he has always been an eternal optimist. I mean, he's not just glass half-full. The glass is overflowing with optimism at any given time. There were at least two times, probably more because I'm getting older and my memory is not as good. But I rolled my eyes when he made the national championship comment that you mentioned in that press conference. I also rolled my eyes. It was pretty early in the season when he said that Armando Baycott was no doubt the ACC player of the year. I, I remember physically rolling my eyes, thinking, what, what, what planet Armando. is he on? And to his credit, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm aware, I'm aware that Armando did not win. Armando. He was the runner-up to <laughs> I keep walking right into that brick Did it to yourself? <laughs> I'm aware that Baycott was the runner-up to Alondis Williams of Wake Forest for ACC Player of the Year. And there's probably a third time I rolled my eyes at Hubert, and it comes with total respect. Hubert is one of the nicest people I've ever met. I'm not exaggerating. Again, he and I are contemporaries. So when he was 20, I was 20-ish. Now that he's 50, I'm 50-ish. Like we, we grew up together, not as children, but from college forward. So I, I know every aspect of his personality. I've met his wife. I've met his kids. I've met his uh, dad. I, unfortunately, I did not meet his late mom who passed away tragically when Hubert was in high school and it's kind of a big part of who he became as a young man that part of his story a Winston-Salem native too her first job was in the uh, Wachovia building look at you go if if there is a triad angle Josh Graham will dig it out um that's great stuff man I'm so glad you can join us from New Orleans and I'm so glad three times the trifecta Josh Graham on the drive with Josh Graham hey have fun young man I'm just so happy that you are at this special event you know how proud I am of you as a good friend and someone I've worked with for a long time. So I'm just thrilled that you're there in person as the Blue Devils and the Tar Heels go at it tomorrow night. No, it's really an honor that you would come in and sit on the show, not you know, gush feet and touchy feeling and stuff. But it means a lot to me, and um, I look forward to seeing you soon. And, and we look forward to our coverage tomorrow. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Graham Radio. And we're going to bring a lot of stories back and a lot of sound back Monday as I'm back in that chair ready to go talking about a national championship game that will be featuring one of our two, uh, one of our teams in the state of North Carolina.